We all talk about Purim as if it was 2,500 years ago, and the reality is it's happening today. Intermarriage, assimilation, Amalek, free Palestine, Jesus missionaries, all types of craziness from anti-Semites all over the world. All that stuff's happening, but yet people are not realizing it. Watch what happens when we have all of these issues addressed in one lecture and a live crowd to ask questions about it. Enjoy the lecture and let me know what you think. everybody. We're gonna have our uh, annual shiur about uh, Purim, some a few insights, and then we're gonna go actually into uh, questions. Uh, lots of questions. We're looking forward to your questions. Last week there was some good feedback from everybody, from the TikTok, from Facebook, from everywhere else, uh, in regards to um, what's their uh, questions about the Torah, what's their question about Judaism altogether. Some people ask questions uh, from uh, pure interest some qu some people ask questions because of pure stupidity we take both same price uh so with that being said uh, just an update anyone that wants to fulfill the mitzvah of uh, uh helping the poor people during purim can go to our website go to bhpurim.org bhpurim.org there is a special mitzvah to help poor people in uh eretz israel or even wherever you are um if you could help them locally that's even preferable but uh, needless to say, we help uh, Torah scholars in Eretz Israel, uh, in Israel, uh, during this time of the year, during the holidays. And we've already started our uh, food distribution already just to make sure everybody has it uh, in time. So anyone that wants to fulfill that mitzvah can go to that website, bhpurim.org. Uh, aside from that, also uh, very excited to announce a uh, new show that the organization is coming out with. Call it called Returning to Hashem. This is individual stories from different students that we have from all over the world. Uh, some from uh, uh, Switzerland, Australia, New York, Florida, uh, California, uh, Israel, literally all over the world. People are watching our lectures throughout the years and have transformed their lives for the better. Uh, and uh, now it's time to hear their stories and get motivated by them, get inspired by them. Anyone that's interested in being interviewed, this is a video podcast. It's going to be uh, um, run by uh, our own very dear uh, Rabbi uh, Sunny Gigi. He's going to be interviewing people. It's on video. And of course, it's not uh, going to be live. So it's a uh, you get the appointment, you interview, it's on a video, like a, a Skype session or a Zoom or whatever, just in front of your computer and a camera. You go to the interview, probably want to take more than a half hour. Uh, after that, uh, you know, we go into the edit room to make sure everybody looks their best. And then we put it out there for the public to see. We already have several episodes uh, are completed. Then, Baruch Hashem, many people have signed up, uh, you know, over the last 24 hours once they found out about it. So this is coming out. Uh, I would say it'll be launched within probably the next month or so. I'm going to start airing out some of the... Um, interviews but anyone that wants to be part of the first season right now is the time to sign up by sending an email uh, either to myself or to sunny at bezratashem.org and bezratashem we can use your personal story of how you've benefited from our lectures and uh, the organization's work uh, in order to inspire other people 
Hello everyone, I'm Sunny Gigi from the Bizarre the Chef organization. I'm very excited to share that we're working on a new project, a very inspiring podcast called Returning to a Chef. Each episode is going to feature a special guest who will share his Chuba journey and amazing events that took place in their lives in order to return to a chef. If you've been inspired by Rabbi Reuven, Rabbi Farm Kahlon, or by the organization, I invite you to share your story and give our fellow Jews chizuk and hope that they too can follow in the same path. If you're interested, please send an email to sunny at Thank you for all your support. May Hashem strengthen us all to do Chuba every day. Uh, so, with that being said, we're going to get right into it. We have Purim. Purim is an extraordinary holiday that the uh, Gemara and the Midrash says that uh, while other things may not last after Mashiach comes, Purim is the one holiday that will be for eternity. <coughs> the question is, why is Purim so special? I mean, technically, Purim is a rabbinical holiday. We have <clears throat> 613 mitzvot from the Torah itself, but seven mitzvot are from the rabbis, from the sages. Uh, you know, unlike what the missionaries and the anti-Torah people think, where they think that it's really the opposite, that it's 600 mitzvot from the rabbis and only seven from the uh, Torah, uh, we literally only have seven mitzvot, seven laws from the uh, rabbis, uh, and one of them is Purim. Uh, so uh, if it's a rabbinical mitzvah, you would think that this will have uh, less significance, uh, if you will. It would, it's certainly not something that uh, you would see it last forever, but... The Gemara says that this is one of the holidays <clears throat> that defines the Jewish people. <clears throat> On one end, Purim is an extraordinary story that every little kid has probably heard at least parts of it uh, in their life, uh, where you have about 2,500 years ago after the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash and right into the building of the second Bet HaMikdash. The first Bet HaMikdash was around for 410 years. That's the Bet HaMikdash. That's the temple that King Solomon built. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, evil uh, Babylonian empire. And as we said last week, Chachamim say, the sages say, that Nebuchadnezzar was actually the grandson of Shlomo. Of Shlomo. It's a very interesting story in itself. The life of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar is uh, unlike uh, what people think. He wasn't a fool and he certainly wasn't just a, uh, a nobody. He was given this uh, particular uh, job for a reason. Uh, but uh, this uh, evil person and evil empire destroyed the first Bet HaMikdash and it was 70 years before the second Bet HaMikdash was built which lasted for 420 years uh, which began our uh, long-lasting nearly 2,000 year exile that we've been in uh, and uh, this exile is more difficult than all of the exiles that we've had before this is the exile of Edom Edom is <clears throat> the nation of Esav spearheaded uh, by Amalek, uh, the arch nemesis of the Jewish people, the arch nemesis of God himself, after we left Egypt, uh, even, even before we got to Mount Sinai, uh, we're told in the Torah that Amalek attacked us, attacked us for absolutely no reason whatsoever, because if you would think that Amalek was uh, one of the Canaanite nations and perhaps scared that we're going to conquer the land, then yeah, you, it would justify Amalek, uh, you know, um, attacking us, but uh, unlike what uh, you know, what people thought, Amalek was actually not a Canaanite nation. In fact, one of the uh, uh, one of the sfarim that uh, I have here, the uh, called the the Rav Shurim, uh, says that Amalek actually 
uh, is called in one of, one of the verses in the Torah, in one point it's called uh, Canaanite, but later on it's called Amalek. Why? Because Amalek deceived the Jewish people initially by speaking the Canaanite language. They actually trained themselves to speak the Canaanite nations, uh, the Canaanite language, in order for Amisad to pray that uh, he helps us with the Canaanite people, thinking that Amalek was Canaanites, but they're not. Amalek was not a Canaanite nation, and in fact, the Chachamim teaches that Amalek traveled 1,600 parsa. 1,600 parsa is somewhere around 3,200 miles in order to attack Am Yisrael in the desert, meaning that we were nowhere near each other. We were further than a distance between New York and Florida by nearly a factor of two. Uh, and uh, we're not on the way. We're not uh, you know, in their way, but yet they wanted to attack us because they... Uh, believed that Am Yisrael receiving the Torah, Am Yisrael receiving this extraordinary uh, power as being the chosen people by God uh, is uh, simply unwelcomed, uh, not only in their eyes, but uh, apparently in the world's eyes. And Amalek attacked us and has been the enemy of Am Yisrael throughout all of the generations. And uh, that actually is uh, one of the main things that Mordechai knew, and apparently the rest of the generation did not know. Although everyone knew that Amalek is our arch enemy, everyone thought that Amalek is gone because you know Shaul, uh, you know, defeated them. David, you know, also, you know, so we've we've defeated them over the years, but they kept reappearing. And uh, one of the things that uh, Hashem made sure that is impossible for us to tell is who Amalek is. And uh, in fact, that is uh, one of the ways that Amalek uh, deceived us by never really showing their face until it was too late, until we knew that this was them, this was Amalek. Many people uh, thought that uh, Germany was a friend until they started acting like Amalek and uh, annihilated nearly 6 million Jews. Uh, Vigdor Miller, Allah uh, Shalom writes that uh, one of the uh, kindnesses of Hashem to the nations was actually by, by him not letting the Jewish people know who Amalek is because this allowed some of Amalek's descendants to convert to Judaism and actually become righteous Jews because technically at the end of it all, each and every single one of the creations out there has a spark of God in them and thereby can be good. Although Amalek, generally speaking, are uh, you know, uh, evil people, people that want evil people that are against the Torah, if they try hard enough, they can get that spark of good out of them. They, they are capable of doing it. And in fact, some of the great sages that are mentioned uh, throughout the generations were descendants of Haman. Haman, the, the very same Haman that's in Megillat uh, uh, Esther that we're reading about. So we see here that on one end, Amalek is an enemy of the Torah, an enemy of God, an enemy of the Jewish people. On the other end, Amalek reappears and sometimes uh, uh, is a, appearing as our friend and sometimes appearing as a foe. Uh, the question is, you know, how did this all happen? Why does Hashem allow all of this to happen, all of this confusion? One of the things that we learned from the sages is that Amalek, the numerical value of the uh, word Amalek in Hebrew, is the same as the word safik, which means doubt. And this is actually one of the traits of Amalek. When they're not fighting a physical war with, with swords and guns and tanks and poison and all that other stuff, they fight with words. And one of the traits of Amalek is to make a mockery of the Torah in order to minimize it, in order to make it look like as if it's not legitimate, as if it's not as important as it is. 
And unfortunately, you will sometimes find, you know, regular average Jews that are not very uh, uh, knowledgeable about the significance of the Torah, the truth of the Torah, also acting the same way like they, like Amalek does. And in fact, you will sometimes find people that were born Jewish also being Amalek, meaning that Amalek is not a specific nation and a religion per se. Amalek is a specific behavior trait uh, and that uh, anyone can adapt as well. So here we see that uh, Amalek tried many times throughout all of the generations to minimize the Torah, to make fun of the Torah. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, like any other time in history, it's obviously as apparent as day that it's happening today, only today it's much more public. Uh, similar to what happened right before the Holocaust, people became a lot more vocal about their, you know, distaste for Jewish people, distaste for the Torah, distaste for the people of Israel and uh, it's become a trend today it's become uh, something that's acceptable in society where 10 15 years ago if you mention anything anti-semitic immediately you were booted off the network your your books were no longer sold and uh you know you, any contract you had would simply be uh canceled today people are literally signing contract as a result of their Amalek behavior, as a result of their anti-Semitism, as a result of their hatred of the Jewish people, and don't highlight the uh, the uh, the Kanye West uh, debacle that happened over the last several months as the example of oh look they canceled his contracts. No, he wanted those contracts canceled, as he said so himself. The point being is is that it's suddenly become popular and acceptable to be anti-semitic it's become uh, popular and acceptable to be anti-semitic even if you are yourself semitic meaning that you actually have a huge group of israeli jews and american jews and sometimes german jews and other jews that are actually against the torah themselves alongside with the black hebrew israelites and the farrakhans and the lefty liberals and all of the other anti-semitics that are always there so the reality is, is that the, the anti-Semitism has always been there. It's one of the tools that God uses in order to remind us that we are Jewish and we are not like them and to not assimilate, that we're never going to be accepted. But yet at the same token, it's confusing that when you see your brother that's a Jew, your sister that's a Jew, joining the anti-Semites, you know, saying things on radio shows and news networks and even making entire films showing how much they hate the Torah and how much they hate the rabbis and Judaism altogether. So, of course, this creates even more confusion for those that are not knowledgeable enough. And one of the things that we see here in Megillat Estel is really the foundation of all of this, in a sense where you see that the story itself is taking place approximately 2,500 years ago at a place called Shushan where this place in itself, Shushan, was an unusual place for it to be a capital of the, uh, at that time, the most powerful king in the world. Now, of course, this was not chosen just because, this was chosen specifically, as since this was the time before the building of the second temple, Achashverosh, the uh, king of over 127 countries, Mi'odu Adkush, or the, uh, the uh, Gaon Vilna says, why does it say 127 countries? Because it was 100 countries on land and 27 islands. So he literally controlled the world at the time. But he specifically picked this place called Shushan to be his capital. Only because 
he wanted to build the same throne that King Solomon had, which was a very sophisticated throne that had technology that we don't even have available to us today. Uh, where the uh, kings before him, whether it's uh, Pharaoh Nero or some of the others that actually tried to replicate or even tried to steal the throne of King Solomon, got hurt and paralyzed because of it, because it had unique technology that did not require electricity, but operated as if it does. Where after a person stepped on the first step, they would have to say a verse from the Torah. If they said the correct verse, they would be elevated all the way to the next step. If they didn't, one of the statues, uh, the uh, the lion usually, would be uh, hitting them on the back and paralyzing them. If not the lion, then it would be the eagle. And then after somebody arrived at the actual throne itself, which in this case was only King Solomon, there was a golden bird, not uh, not operating like a uh, one of these uh, little airplanes but rather a golden bird had a technology to fly in the air by carrying the uh, crown of King Solomon. So very extraordinary technology. Anyone that wants to look into the Midrash that talks about the sophisticated uh, throne of King Solomon, you'd literally be amazed at how all of the technology that we have today and more was available to the widest, smartest man of all time, which is King Solomon. Yet, Achashverosh and other kings tried to replicate it, tried to steal it, and Achashverosh was only successful in replicating it to a certain extent after three years. His only problem is that after three years, they realized that they can't move the thing. So he decided that this throne is so important, he's simply going to build a city around the throne, hence being Shushan. This is where it was built, that's where the engineers were, and that's where he decided that's going to be his capital. Then Achashverosh wants to celebrate. He wants to celebrate the fact that the second Bet HaMikdash was not built. Why does he care that the second Bet HaMikdash was not built? Because according to his calculations, is if it was not built within a 70-year time frame that he calculated, which was incorrect, then it would mean that he would be the king forever. Simply put, the Jews are gone forever. So he wanted to celebrate it, and he had the treasures uh, treasures, 1,080 treasures that Nebuchadnezzar stole from the Bet HaMikdash and were hidden at the bottom of the Euphrates. He had access to these treasures and he wanted to have a party for 180 days in order to show off all of these treasures, six treasures per day. This is why when it describes the treasures, it gives six different adjectives, six different words to describe the treasures of, of uh, uh, Achashverosh, meaning that the Megillah is written in the same format as our Holy Torah is, where each and every single word is divinely inspired, is carefully put there, has a significance, not only why the word is specifically used that way, why it's spelled a certain way, why there's a certain number of letters, certain number of words, certain number of adjectives, verbs, and otherwise, showing us that when something is divine, there's literally an endless ocean to dig into in order to find out all of the secrets that are there. But here we see that, as the Gaon Vilna says, that Achashverosh built this city around the throne, celebrating that the second Bet HaMikdash was not built. Little does he know that his son will eventually uh, uh, be the one that builds the Bet HaMikdash because he ends up marrying Estelle. But the point being, at this time, he is an anti-Semite no less than Haman. Haman the Agagi was an anti-Semite Amalek, but 
Achashverosh also was an anti-Semite. Although he was an anti-Semite for different reasons. Simply he wanted to be the king. Now what made him allow Haman to bring this decree to annihilate all of the Jews? Very simple. He never actually met any Jews. And he just listened to what Haman said. Haman said, look, you're having this party. And you don't realize that while you're having this party, there's a strange nation that uh, they don't want to speak the king's language. They don't want to adapt the language. You know, it's like people say, how come you guys uh, speak Yiddish? How come you guys speak uh, Hebrew? How come uh, you guys don't speak uh, English or German or whatever, you know, language people are complaining about? The truth be told is that plenty of Jews speak English and other languages much more than other people do. But uh, the, the reality is that people still have something to complain about. Same thing with Haman. Haman said, they don't speak our language as if we don't want to. Now, that was one of the reasons that showed Achashverosh, oh, they live here, but they don't want to be like us. They said, no, it's even worse than that, Haman says. Haman said, it's even worse than that. If your highness has a, uh, 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 touches their wine, they won't drink it. They'll pour it out in the garbage. But if a fly falls into their cup, they'll just take the fly out and drink the wine. Meaning that the fly is less despicable than your highness's hand. Now, of course, Haman knew the reason behind this. But he didn't tell the reason to Achashverosh. What's the reason? We have a din, a law, which is called Yain Nesich, which is wine of idolatry. Now, I used to always say in the previous generations they used to do this until I found out of a story that happened to our own very dear Rav Ephraim just two weeks ago. So it's no longer a, you know, in previous generations. It literally is still happening now. What is it? In the previous generations, one of the ways that idol worshippers would serve their idols would be actually through wine. They would take wine, they would make uh, murmur certain prayers, sometimes they would pour the wine, sometimes they would drink the wine, but in essence, the wine was used as a way to serve their idols. And therefore, the Jewish people you know, had a, uh, uh, a law that if an idolater touches your wine, you simply cannot drink that wine anymore. You have to get rid of it. Why? Because you don't know if he said any particular idolatrous prayer on it, which is obviously problematic for us. We have a lot of respect at the very, you know, to, to say the least, and, and awe and fear from the Almighty. We don't want to serve the Almighty and make a prayer over a uh, over a wine that was uh, previously uh, served or prayed over for some idol. So, Simply put, if an idolater takes a cup of wine, shakes it, or murmurs something to it, or a bottle, if the bottle is open, we don't know what they did with it. We simply discard it. That's it. It has nothing to do with you personally. It's just simply one of the laws we have in our Torah. Now, this was something that was common in the previous generations. That's why in the tractate of Abu Dazarah, the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazarah, has an entire section about what happens if you have to uh, deliver barrels of wine and the only delivery people you have are non-jews can you use them uh, yes you can so how do you use them in, uh, and you're not scared that they're going to touch the wine well you double seal it the point being is there was a whole type of industry around protecting the wine which is needless to say still available and around today today all the wine that you buy from the stores is sealed and therefore it's not a problem but Again, we thought that this was a problem of yesteryear. The reality is it's still a problem today. Just a couple of weeks ago, Rabbi Ephraim's uh, uh, wife uh, you know, has, uh, wanted to uh, get some help to, uh, to uh, clean the house. 
and uh, they hired some uh, some woman that was not Jewish, uh, you know, in Israel, that uh, to help them clean the house. Now, they're cleaning, and you know everybody else is doing whatever they're doing. And then the rabbinit, you know, looked, uh, you know, looked, saw that the uh, it was suddenly quiet, and she looked around the corner of the of the wall, and she saw that this non-Jewish cleaning lady is picking up the wine and murmuring something and then closing it and putting it away picking up another bottle of wine murmuring whispering something closing the bottle putting it away literally just like the Gemara warns us that's what she did now of course they fired her and goodbye but the point being is is that this is still alive and well in fact we even have a uh, somebody that I uh, I told this uh, story to they say what do you mean we did there's somebody in my neighborhood there's some strange uh, 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 idolater in the neighborhood that every time we walk around in the neighborhood she walks uh, she crosses the street in order to walk right next to us and every time we walk by she like looks at us and murmurs something which is not legible to us but she's murmuring something and walks away and then sometimes she turns around and comes back and then murmurs something again and walks away obviously these are crazy people these deranged idolaters but nonetheless this is still alive and well if the sages warned us about it there's a reason so now this is warned about these jewish people that are not adapting his language not adopting their laws obviously here's a lot of bad things about them some same thing like people here on the internet today where they're uh, told that the talmud is anti-semitic or they're told that uh, jewish people hate the non-jews and all types of stupid things that are simply not true for anyone that actually studied the torah they would know that if the gentiles would know how valuable the temple was for their sake they would send their armies in order to protect the temple meaning that we had an entire holiday of sukkot where each day the Jewish people would bring 70 sacrifices to the temple for the sake of the protection and well-being of the Gentile nations and in fact the the reality is that we have no qualms with the Gentile nations so long as they're not trying to attack us but of course someone that is ignorant of Torah or worse yet just simply hates the Torah they're going to find a bunch of things in the Talmud and in different parts of the Midrashim and the, what the sages say and misinterpret them either intentionally or unintentionally and highlight these things in order to make their agenda uh, seem apparent, which is to show that the Jews are bad, which of course is their goal. And this is obviously happening uh, by the uh, doings of people like uh, Kanye or the Black Hebrew Israelites or Farrakhan or, or the uh, Christian missionaries, some of which, many of which, are actually born Jews, but nonetheless they're self-hating Jews. So this type of stuff is not new. It was already happening at the time of Haman, the Agagi, the Amalekite, 2,500 years ago. So this is also one of the things that people have simply become numb to where you see that sometimes people will befriend some of the people that are self-hating Jews, thinking, listen, we have differences in the religious beliefs, but we're still good friends. How could that be? If somebody made fun of your father and spit in his face and maybe even slapped him a few times, you'd still be friends with them? No, of course not. So how come it's okay for this person to do that to your father in heaven? 
where he's insulting him, he is uh, disgracing him, but you're still friends with this person. You're still voting for this person. You're still working for this person. You're still partners with this person. People don't necessarily put the two and two together. Why? Because of self-interest. So we have here Haman trying to take this party that was already begun with the uh, the wrong agenda of Achashverosh, celebrating that he thinks that he's going to be the king forever. And uh, Haman is uh, also uh, called Memuchan. He has another name called Memuchan based on the uh, word Muchan, which is ready. He was ready for, uh, for the attack, but also ready for his own annihilation eventually. He uh, put himself in a position to be annihilated by God, by being the enemy of the Jewish people. And the, uh, the Midrash says that uh, Haman was actually from Hodu. He was from India. And uh, Achashverosh was from Africa. He was, he was from Kush. He was one of the descendants of Ham. So uh, uh, Achashverosh, as it would appear, was a black guy. Haman was an Indian guy. And uh, um, Mordechai, our hero in this, uh, uh, in, in this whole thing, he was from, uh, uh, from, um, from Babylon. Uh, yeah. So we have a, a lot of different people from different places. How did they all arrive here? One of the things that happened before this whole Megillah was the, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Bet HaMikdash, but even before he destroyed the Bet HaMikdash, 11 years before that, he brought the elite of Am Yisrael into Babylon. He brought the Torah scholars, the successful people, he brought them all down to, uh, to Babylon, and uh, in fact, Hashem having mercy on Am Yisrael, he uh, brought some of the main people that are going to give life to the Torah again already before the disaster eventually happened. Uh, even more so, he, uh, the ones that actually saved Am Yisrael in the story were, not, uh, you know, were already uh, taken out of danger, which was in uh, Jerusalem at the time, and before this whole thing happened. Now, Mordechai, the Seder uh, Adorot says, was, uh, was gifted with a long life. He lived approximately 400 years. So, of course, I know that in the so-called rational minds of today, this is impossible. But again, if you believe in the Torah, these types of things are pretty standard. Uh, as you see, there are many times in the Torah people uh, that are uh, very old. And even though Hashem uh, said at the time of Noah that he's going to uh, limit the age to 120 years, uh, we see clearly verses in the Torah that there were many others that lived beyond 120 years, such as Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. Many people lived beyond 120 years, meaning that there were exceptions to the rule. And uh, there were exceptions like a uh, Mordechai who lived approximately 400 years. And uh, in fact, Esther, Esther, when she uh, uh, married Achashverosh, was 75 years old. And Hashem miraculously made her beautiful in the eyes of anybody that saw her. Anyone that saw Esther thought that she was one of the, his own people, including Haman. Haman thought that, she, that Esther was an Amalekite. Achashverosh thought that she was also from Cush. Everyone thought that she was beautiful as Hashem puts the uh, beauty 
uh, of a person in the eyes of the beholder and uh, specifically made a miracle in this case where even though all of the Persian women uh, were uh, showing themselves for a period of a year to Achashverosh to, uh, to be picked as uh, the next queen, the second, and they were giving themselves to, uh, to Achashverosh and in essence uh, made themselves into lifelong concubines, meaning all of the women that were, uh, were uh, in the uh, process, in the lotto, if you will, uh, the selection process of Achashverosh to be the next queen, were never able to get remarried, were never able to get married to anybody again because once they were together with Achashverosh, they were never allowed to be with anybody else again, literally destroyed their lives. So one of the Chachamim asks, why did Hashem punish the uh, Persian women in such a way? And uh, one of the reasons was, was because the Persian women were anti-Semitic and would make fun of the Jewish girls. Uh, they would make fun of them, they would make fun of their modesty, they would make fun uh, of their looks, and uh, for that, Hashem punished them. So we see here that the, uh, the blessing and the curse that Hashem said to Avram Avinu, our forefather, does get fulfilled at some point or another. Hashem has his own timing. Those that will bless you, I will bless them. Those that will curse you, I will curse them. This happened to the Persian women. It also happened to uh, Achashverosh. It happened to, uh, uh, to Haman. But uh, before this whole story take, gets to the next point of you know, a near annihilation of the Jewish people, we always have to ask ourselves, why did this all happen? Why did this all happen? We mentioned it briefly in a uh, shiur last week, which is that in this party that is celebrating the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, the fact that there was no success in rebuilding the house of God, where Chashverosh is celebrating by showing off 1,080 treasures of the Bet HaMikdash that was stolen from us. He is wearing the clothing of the uh, Kohen Gadol, you know, in so many words, desecrating the holiness of the uh, Kohen Gadol, of the Kedusha of the Bet HaMikdash. And instead of frowning upon this, instead of running away from this, many of the Jewish people at the time, including the ones that consider themselves religious, simply assimilate and say, you know what, listen, if you can't beat them, join them. There's a big party. It's a 180-day party. He's inviting everybody. If we don't come, maybe that's going to put us in danger. If we don't have some, uh, some people over there representing the Jewish people, maybe it's going to increase anti-Semitism. If we don't have people, you know, acting and, 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 and socializing and networking with the Gentiles, that's going to put all of us at risk. So I'll go. And the other guy says, you know what? I'll go too. And the other guy says, okay, I'll go too. And before you know it, almost everybody goes except Mordechai. And Mordechai cries out to everybody, you cannot go to such things. You cannot mingle with these people. You cannot go and do all of this. And not only did they do it, they enjoyed it. And they drank the wine and they ate the food. And everything that they did had an excuse. The food, we ate it because it's kosher. The wine, we drank it because it's kosher. The party, we, we went there because the king invited us. And we had to have pres- you know, representation there. Sort of sounds like today, where you have many people that... Uh, some of them claim to be religious, assimilating with the non-Jews in such a fashion that sometimes you're not even sure who they're rooting for, who they're helping, who they're doing everything that they're doing, you know, until something bad happens, like something was announced in the last few days that some crazy anti-Semite in Michigan 
made a public statement on uh, Twitter that he's going to kill any politician that's Jewish unless they are uh, they they leave the office or they uh, uh, repent or something like that or they admit something that they did wrong. And of course, there was a Jewish female that was a politician that got very scared because she found out from the FBI that uh, she was one of the targets, that he was going to kill her. And of course, this is highlighted by the Jewish media. And oh, wow, this is so scary. A Jew should be scared. We shouldn't even run for office anymore. We shouldn't do this. We're going to be scared. Please, do me a favor. No Jew is scared of running for office. In fact, many people make it into a career. And in fact, one of the things I can tell you that a smart Gentile said many years ago by the name of Ronald Reagan, that the problem with politics began when people made it into a career. That's when politicians became a problem. You see, politics used to be a stepping stone of what you would do before you actually got a real job. When did politics become a problem? When people made it their job. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you are a lifelong politician, certainly you're corrupt, certainly you're no good, certainly you're not helping anybody but yourself. And whether you're Jew or Gentile is irrelevant. And that's the reality. But of course, the Jewish people will highlight what they can in order to make it seem as if this has anything to do with Judaism. No, it doesn't. He's not trying to kill you because you're Jewish. Hashem is trying to warn you because you're Jewish. Hashem is telling you, listen, you shouldn't be there. You as a female, a Jewish woman, shouldn't be assimilated to such an extent that you are spending the majority of your life delving into the politics of the Gentile nation. Go run your life. Go serve your God. Go do something that's more productive and helpful to society. And politics certainly is not it. Now you're going to say, yeah, but the politicians help. Who did they help? Who exactly did they help? Name one politician in the history of anything, in the history of any nation that actually helped their own people. Politicians only help themselves. And unfortunately, many Jewish people think that politics is going to help the Jewish people, but the reality is the other way. Now, of course, we've always had friends in politics. Rabbis had friends in politics. Rich people had friends in politics. And certainly you can use politics for your advantage to help your people, to help your community, whether it's a black community, Spanish community, Jewish community, and so on. But to go make your life a politician, certainly that eliminates any type of uh, honesty that a person has. Why? Because again, now you're not fighting for your people. You're fighting for your job. You have a self-interest. You have a bias. But of course, Hashem tries to give us these types of messages time and time again, but we're not listening. And that's in essence what happened at the time of Achashverosh. Am Yisrael was simply not listening. The biggest rabbi in the world, Mordechai, a Yehudi, he's called Mordechai a Yehudi because he looked proudly Jewish. He had his tefillin on, he had his long peyot, much longer than mine and much bigger than mine. He had his Jewish clothes on, not the black and white that you see Jewish people wearing today because there was a different style back then, but everyone knew that he's Jewish from far away. That's what the Ben Ishchai says. And the reality is, is that Mordechai was the biggest sage in the world and still got a job with the king, still had an extraordinary amount of power, still was very, very holy. He didn't have to forsake his Judaism, in order to succeed in life. And that's unfortunately what a lot of people forget. They think that in order to succeed in life, you have to assimilate. You have to become like them. You have to look like them. You have to talk like them. And it actually, it's the opposite. The more a Jew looks and acts like the Gentiles, the more the Gentiles hate him. 
That's actually one of the rules in the world. It's no different than gravity. Gentiles don't want Jews to look like them. They want the Jews to look like Jews, to be like Jews. But unfortunately, sometimes you have the Jew wearing a costume the whole year as if is a, uh, you know, and, and, and not wearing a costume on, on, on Purim. What does that mean? On Purim, there's one of the traditions where we have a, uh, we wear costumes. Usually kids wear costumes. Adults typically don't wear costumes. But sometimes adults like to have fun and they want to wear a costume. Not a problem. The problem is when the costume is of something provocative, when something, the, the costume is something immodest, then it's not allowed. But needless to say, one of the Chachamim said, we noticed that many times people are wearing a costume at the wrong time. They pretend to be a righteous Jew while doing corrupt business by not acting well, by giving a bad name to Jewish people throughout the whole year. But then on, on Purim, they wear a costume as if they're a, a, a bad Gentile, some, some, uh, some uh, pirate or some uh, crook or some criminal or something. In reality, they were the criminal the whole year. They gave us the whole nation a problem the whole year. That's the costume. So again, it's important for us to know that Akadosh Baruch Hu judges the Jewish people much more than he judges everyone else out there. When we are corrupt, when we do things that are wrong, we are in essence giving power to Amalek. One of the places in the Torah that proves this is what we read on Shabbat, this past Shabbat, in, uh, in, uh, in the Parashat Zachor, where it says that uh, to not uh, uh, forget Amalek, we have to destroy Amalek, but the verse before it, talks about corrupt business practices. Rashi, from 900 years ago, comments on this verse, saying that the reason why corrupt business practices is a verse preceding the, uh, the warning of Amalek is because when Jewish people are corrupt in business, they're in, empowering Amalek. This is, in essence, another one of the things that happened during this time, where Jewish people started adapting to the non-Jewish uh, behaviors and empowered Amalek, empowered Haman, which at the beginning of the, of the Megillah did not have much power. He was just another one of the servants. And only in chapter 2 does it talk about how Achashverosh decided to make him his second-in-command, meaning that he got this merit from God. God allowed this to happen. No one wins or loses without God signing off on it, meaning that God actually decided to give power to our arch enemy. Why would Hashem want to give so much power to Haman? Because of our behavior. When we assimilated, when we started acting like them, Hashem says, if you want to act like them, then you'll be in their hands. Now, one of the things that you also see that's common uh, a denominator in any type of disaster that happened to the Jewish people throughout history is the issues of loss of kedusha loss of morality of you know things of uh, things that are relevant to immodesty and you see that one of the things that actually saved us is morality so on one end we assimilated we started doing uh, uh spending too much time with the and the gentiles on the other end we were punished because of this assimilation where vashti would actually use jewish girls to uh to uh to help her and she would specifically make them clean the whole empire the whole palace naked on shabbat making them desecrate the shabbat making them uh appear obviously immodest 
And this is the reason why Vashti, the, uh, the former queen of Ahasuerus, was punished in such regard. She was a very beautiful woman until Hashem punished her by making her, uh, giving her tzarat, which is like uh, leprosy, and also having a tail grow out of, uh, out of her behind. Now, when did this happen? Moments before Ahasuerus asked her to appear in front of everybody during this party with only her crown on to show off her beauty. She didn't want to come, not because she suddenly decided to be modest and reserved and not show herself. She was proud of doing things like this. That's the reason why he asked her to do it, because that's what she did. She was a disgusting human being that showed her body everywhere. But she decided to, do, to not do it because she suddenly became the ugliest creature on planet Earth, where Hashem punished her measure for measure. So we see here that this immorality obviously was apparent in the house of Ahasuerus. This was also one of the things that led to the demise of Vashti. Later on, you see that Ahasuerus himself is, uh, is a disgusting human being by literally raping every one of the women in the, uh, in the area, uh, whether they were married or not married. Initially, he just wanted uh, uh, virgin young women. Later on, he simply took any woman. That's why the, uh, the verses talk about both types of women. Everybody had to spend a year there with him until he saw Estelle. Estelle was so extraordinary in his eyes that he simply put the crown on her and he decided to marry her on the spot and have another party to celebrate it. That's how Hashem uh, protected Estelle. And it specifically talks about how Estelle now becomes the queen of 127 countries. Why do I need to know about this 127 countries again? It was already told to us at the beginning that he was the king of 127 countries. The Chachamim teaches that the reason why it, uh, it mentions 127 countries again is because we want to know why. Why did they still merit to have this position of power? She merited to have this position of power because she was the daughter of Sarah, Sarah Imenu. Not literally biological daughter. She was a descendant of Sarah Imenu. But why is she called the daughter of Sarah? Because she was modest just like Sarah. And just like Sarah was modest for 127 years, her granddaughter, Estelle, that was also modest, merited to have 127 countries to rule over. One time there was a student that uh, was falling, dozing off during the shield that Rabbi Akiva was giving. And Rabbi Akiva asked them, why do you think it mentions 127 countries that, uh, that Esther is going to rule over? And the student, of course, didn't know. He says, this is the reason. Because she was the descendant of Sarah. And Sarah was modest for 127 years. Esther was modest for the 75 years. She got the benefit. But what does that really mean? It means that every single second of Sarah's life, that means she, that she was modest, she merited ruling over another family. Every, every minute, she ruled over another neighborhood. Every, uh, every hour, she ruled over another city. Meaning that every single moment that Sarah Imenu was fulfilling the mitzvah of modesty, Hashem gave her an endless amount of reward, both in this world and the next. So much so that even her great-great-great-granddaughter benefited from this reward. That's how you learn not to waste time and do mitzvot instead. So we see here that the interesting details of, uh, of the Megillah really do not end. But one of the things that uh, I, I would say is important for us to really 
capture from this Megillah is how do we compare this to our world today? Not even necessarily the world, but how do we compare ourselves to our personal lives, each and every single one? If we were in this story, if this story is coming back to life, which I think it is, you're seeing anti-Semitism rise like a, uh, like a, like a rocket. You're seeing that there are certain people that are in position to be the next Haman. Uh, there are certain people that are already showing their vile hatred for the Jewish people and they're rising and they're being accepted. So literally, a Haman could wake up at any given moment, whether it's in India or it's in China or it's in America or it's in uh, Israel. Literally, there's a bunch of dis- different places that have potential Hamans. And we see that Am Yisrael, if it wasn't for them doing complete tshuva, fasting for three days repenting accepting the torah literally doing the whole mount sinai thing all over again but with the clock ticking if it wasn't for that we wouldn't be here the non-religious jews didn't survive it was only the religious jews that survived thrived and are still the reason why am israel exists in the world today meaning that if you are a reform a conservative an lgbtqy xyz if you are a uh, black hebrew israelite that believes you're jewish but in reality you're still praying to the new testament and and, and still believe in yoshke if you are uh, a uh, you know pretending to be but you're not bottom line is you didn't survive this whole time if you were one of the greeks that uh, you know one of the jews that became like a greek one of the jews that became like the american one of the jews that became like wherever you are but you simply forgot and forsook your relationship with god your relationship with the torah you didn't survive this you didn't survive this so here we see that it was only due to the orthodox religious jews like Mordechai that hashem gave us more time to live so now how do we compare ourselves today i'm going to ask you guys after i ask this question and answer it briefly i'm going to ask you guys what's your problem with judaism today why aren't you a orthodox jew that's following the torah to the fullest what valid logical rational legitimate reason do you have now of course you may ask questions and i'll answer those questions but again if you are born jewish but you're not practicing then how do you compare to this story the reality is that if you are part of this story you wouldn't have survived why because Hashem didn't save Am Yisrael because they were reform Hashem didn't save Mordechai and the rest of Am Yisrael because they were conservative or because they were messianic or because they started some new sect that says that their rabbi that died is God or he's the Mashiach or, or, or started a new religion and called it the new uh, the new uh, testament no he saved the Jewish people for sticking to the same exact law that we've had since the time of Moshe Rabbeinu and until now. He saved the Orthodox Jews. He saved them because they were modest. He saved them because they were loyal. He saved them because they sanctified even their intimacy. So if we see that this is what worked, this is what God accepted back then, and we know that God doesn't change. He's not a man that changes his mind. He's not a person that's confused. He's not someone that forgets. If this is why he saved us, and again saved us at the time of Hanukkah for the same exact reasons, then what gives you or anybody the rational excuse to continue going against it? Meaning that if we were living, if you believe 
that we are in the end of times if you even if you don't believe we're in the end of times but you see what's happening in the news if you're not sleeping under a rock you see anti-semitism is skyrocketing there's literally murders in every city for some anti-semitic reason but the media doesn't like to call it anti-semitism even the murders in israel that are caused by terrorists specifically targeting jews the media is not calling terrorism they're calling it everything else but terrorism but everybody knows it's terrorism when a guy simply decides to drive his car over three people two of which are kid and then reverses and then drives over other people you figure out okay this is terrorism this is not you know an accident especially when his friend does the same exact thing a few days later especially when his other friend shoots people and the other friend stabs people you realize there's a pattern to this this is not just some uh, coronavirus uh, 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 side effect so the reality is you see that this anti-semitism is not only on the rise in America it's on the rise everywhere it's in Israel it's in Israel politics it's in America it's in American politics it's in Europe it's in European politics it's in India it's in Indian politics it's in the Middle East Middle Eastern politics literally the entire world has candidates for Haman to rise at some point meaning there's instead of Achashverosh picking the next queen it seems like Hashem is picking Hashem Yishmor he's picking the next Haman just like the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin Perik Chelek says that if Am Yisrael does not do tshuva if Am Yisrael does not repent he's gonna bring Haman again to force us to do tshuva just like it worked last time so if a person notices everything that's going on out there realizes that his corrupt business practices if they're corrupt are contributing to this anti-semitism his desecration of shabbat are contributing to this her immodesty is contributing to this their lack of honesty contributing to this the lack of care about the torah is contributing to this and the only people that survived are the people that took the Torah and made it a priority in their life so if you claim to be Jewish or a lover of Judaism and you were born Jewish or you want to be Jewish but yet you act anti-Jewish how do you justify that how do you rationalize that how would you survive this story that has repeated itself time and time again throughout history that's the question I'm going to leave you with I'm not going to answer it because it's for you to answer with that being said now I'm going to take any of your questions hopefully your questions will elaborate this even further how do you get your prayers answered you get your prayers answered by first having your actions your actions uh, uh, in line with what the Torah says meaning if a person wants to have Hashem the king of the world the creator of everything in so many words change the decree that's already passed on someone the person has to change what does that mean King David says in Tehilim in Psalms that they lie about me they uh they uh, about things that I did now who is he talking about he's talking about angels that are lying about him how could it be that angels are lying about King David are angels liars no the Mishnah in Masechet Avot says that anytime a person makes a mitzvah, he creates an angel. Does a good deed, creates an angel. Anytime a person makes a sin, he creates a bad angel. Call it a demon, call it a mazik, call it whatever you want. In so many words, a bad angel. Now, 
that sin is that that angel that bad angel or good angel is in essence a testament the signature that that action took place that the name of that angel is the sin that the person made or the mitzvah that the person made so david melech says these this bad angel is lying about me why because he says i did the sin but it's not true why because i already repented i already apologized i already changed my actions meaning that this sin is not mine anymore this angel is not mine anymore i already i fixed everything so if a person does tshuva if a person first and foremost stops the sin doesn't do it anymore commits to not doing it anymore third says i'm sorry says i'm sorry to god for making whatever sin they made whether it's idolatry or stealing or if obviously if they steal they they, they have to return whatever they stole uh or it's a any other sin that the person made against the Torah, a person has to apologize for it really feel sorrow for it make sure not to do it again and not and put themselves in a position that this would not happen again meaning that if you know that your problem happens every time you go to a certain place commit to never going there if you know that your problem your sins happen if you hang out with certain people commit to not spending time with those people anymore so a person that takes this into account and actually takes action to change their actions that person no longer is part of that sin anymore and therefore the decree that was passed on that person when they were sinful let's say the decree was for them to lose money the decree for them uh, for, for them to be sick now since the sin is no longer theirs it's somebody else's therefore you're saying to Hashem please help me because I'm not the same person that had that decree that decree that you gave of sickness of monetary loss of headaches of whatever that was happening it was right it was not Hashem doesn't change his mind you are 100 percent right but that was for a different person that person was a sinner I stopped I stopped sinning I committed to not doing it so therefore the decree doesn't belong to him anymore and in essence that's how a person gets their prayers answered by changing their behavior in order to change the decree not that the Hashem removes the decree it's just that the decree goes elsewhere it goes to whatever it was that sin which is no longer you so that's in essence the greatest way that a person can get their prayers answered rabbi do you love me i'm a palestinian if you are a uh, lover of jewish people then certainly we care about you if you are a hater of the jews then no you are an enemy uh but it says that there is a mashiach in every generation yes there is a mashiach in every generation meaning that there is a someone that's a potential mashiach potential mashiach and mashiach are two different things the rambam in ilchot melachim so the whole chapter about mashiach in the yad chazaka in the 14 volume books that the rambam wrote it's called the rambam or yad chazaka is a whole section about mashiach and he says that there is certain characteristics certain things that the mashiach would have to do in order to fit the description of being a potential mashiach and then decreed as the mashiach mamash so to be the potential they have to be a descendant of, of king david they have to be a torah scholar a very righteous person and on and on there's other details that have to go with it now to actually be the mashiach itself they have to build the bet mikdash they have to build the bet mikdash and they have to do other things fight the wars of god and so on this is physical wars not just the, the spiritual wars so now a person that a uh, uh that is aware of this uh that is aware of of uh 
this particular issue understands that there has to be a descendant of king david in every single generation because the torah tells us that the uh um mashiach can come at any given day that means that if he can come at any given day which would mean that eliyahu anavi eliyahu the prophet would come three days before him and some say he could even come during the same day as mashiach introducing the mashiach meaning they would come together because Eliyahu Navi has to be in the picture because there has to be a prophet that puts the special oil on the Mashiach, a living prophet, and uh, not just some prophet that uh, is an angel. A living prophet, which Eliyahu Navi is the only remaining prophet out there, simply because he never died. So Eliyahu Navi would come, as the as the uh, uh, the Torah says, either three days before Mashiach comes to announce that he's coming, or the same day as the mashiach he would come with the mashiach himself put the special oil on him and this would be shown pretty much everyone would see that there is no doubt this is mashiach no one would disagree that this person is mashiach there would be no doubts there would be enemies but no doubts meaning people would know that he's mashiach but still go to war against him because they don't want the mashiach and some of the biggest enemies of the mashiach are going to be amalek but also some of those amalek are going to be born jews it's not going to be just gentiles it's going to be some born jews that hate the torah so much that they actually declare war against the mashiach this we have to say because there's a verse in the torah that says your conquerors your destroyers will come from within you which means that every single one of us is either a potential uh, 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 amazing beautiful light to the world or we literally are our own worst enemy if we follow the Torah, we could be a light to the world. We could be light to our own nation and other nations. If we are against the Torah, unfortunately, we could be darkness to the world. No less than Haman. So it's important for a person to know that just because you uh, were born Jewish doesn't necessarily give you a get-out-of-jail-free card that you could do whatever you want. No, everybody has rules. The Jews have rules. The Gentiles have rules. But needless to say, it's important for a person to know that anytime you do see, you do uh, meet a Jew, your greatest chance... To get yourself the greatest heaven is by when you see that Jew to try to encourage that person to become more religious. And the best way to do it is giving them one of the lectures that we have, one of the USBs that we have, or if you have somebody else that's very uh, uh, successful in helping people do tshuva, uh, give them some reasons to change. Don't just tell them change because they don't they won't know why. But the point being is is that every generation has to have this uh, descendant of King David, but Hashem obviously is not going to make uh, make this uh, Mashiach come in every generation. There's a someone that's a potential, someone that has the tools to be that person. But until now, for the last two thousand years, Hashem did not choose anyone to be the Mashiach yet. Uh, the Gemara says that if it was at the time of uh, of this uh, of this uh, uh, Megillah, this was at the time of uh, where Daniel was still alive. He's actually in Megillah Testeri, he's called Atach. Atach is Daniel, the prophet Daniel. And the Gemara says that if it was at this time, then Daniel would have been Mashiach. If it was at the time of Rebbe Akadosh, Rabbi Udanasi, which is a few hundred years after this, uh, then uh, Rebbe, Rebbe Akadosh would have been Mashiach. If it was at the time of Chizkiyahu, uh, Chizkiyahu would have been Mashiach. Why? Because everyone knew they were the most righteous scholars, most righteous people on planet Earth. Uh, and there was no doubt that they would fit, especially since they were descendants of, uh, of uh, Yehuda. Uh, they, so they had all of the tools. But until now, 
we, uh, we haven't had the Mashiach. I know that there's some people that say that uh, some guy that died 2,000 years, 2,000 years ago, he's the Mashiach. Obviously, this does not follow the laws of the Torah for someone being the Mashiach. And also some people that say that some rabbi that died uh, you know, three, uh, 30 years ago is the Mashiach. Obviously, he also doesn't follow the rules of the Mashiach, even though people say he does. He doesn't. Point being is, according to the vast majority of Jews, Mashiach has not arrived and is not someone that's going to die and resurrect. It's someone that's alive, someone that was born of a woman, someone that is not someone that's just uh, some uh, mystical uh, creature coming out of some UFO. No, it's a normal person coming into the world that's very righteous, that's a Torah scholar, that's committed to God, that's willing to fight the wars of God, and also is a descendant of King David. So this is somebody that exists in the world today. We don't know who it is. And anyone that pinpoints at anybody else, oh, he looks like he's really Mashiach because he's popular. Oh, he looks like he's Mashiach because he has a nice beard or he's old. These are all stupid things to do. Don't guess who the Mashiach is. And the reason why I say it's stupid is because the Rambam and many of the Chachamim say that people that do this, including people that put the timing of when Mashiach uh, would come, get a curse for doing such a thing because these types of things cause more damage than good. Because when people find out that this person is not the Mashiach or that the Mashiach is not coming at that date that everyone predicted, it causes a lot of people to lose, uh, to lose their, uh, you know, their, their ambition to serve God. So it's best to never guess who is Mashiach or when he's going to come. We have uh, certain uh, numbers according to the Torah of when he has to come by, which is he has to come before the year 6000. We are at 5784. So, uh, 5783, so we are, uh, uh, we're not far away from that. He has to come before that, but we don't know when. Between now and then, we don't know when he's going to come. We're only going to know once he comes. Next question is, somebody asked, are they allowed to vape tomorrow? Allowed to brush their teeth tomorrow? Are they allowed to use a, a mouthwash tomorrow? Because tomorrow is the fast of Estelle. Uh, during the day is a uh, fast for Jewish people until you read the Megillah. After you read the Megillah, uh, you uh, drink, eat, whatever, but usually people read the Megillah shortly after the fast is over. Uh, so if you need to, you could drink something. Uh, you could even eat a small uh, cookie. You cannot eat more than 40 grams. You can't eat like a, a sandwich or something like that. If you must eat, you could eat something small right when the fast ends. If it's before, if the Megillah hasn't started. But if the Megillah started, just wait until the Megillah is over, the Megillah doesn't take much long, you know, long to uh, read. Usually it takes about a half hour to read. Now, during the day, while you're fasting, this is a, a one, of, this is the easiest fast of the year. It's only a day fast, meaning that it starts in the morning. It's not like Yom Kippur or Tisha B'Av that starts the night before. It starts in the morning and it continues until the, uh, the, uh, the night. So this is like less than half of a day fast. Uh, during the day, you are allowed to uh, smoke cigarettes or vape or, or brush your teeth or wash your mouth. Obviously not for the purpose of drinking and, uh, and eating. You're allowed to uh, do those things uh, so long as you make sure none of that stuff goes obviously down your throat and you drink it. But you're allowed to uh, uh, vape, smoke. You're allowed to do that with no problem. Uh, this is a, uh, uh, allowed on, uh, on the uh, pouring fest. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Okay. 
Team published the Rebbe is Mashiach of the generation. Who else is more holy than the Rebbe? Uh, whatever, whatever people say about the Rebbe being Mashiach, I just discussed it. Like I said, Mashiach has to be alive. The Rebbe died. Uh, with all due respect to the Rebbe and his Torah, he died and therefore he does not fit to be Mashiach. And those that say that uh, he could come back to, uh, from the dead and, uh, and be Mashiach, uh, then uh, they're simply uh, negating uh, 3,000 years of Torah and, uh, and, and great sages. Why? Because if you're going to say that uh, according to uh, the uh, lone opinion that it's possible for the Mashiach to resurrect and come back from the dead, then it's even more of a reason of why the Lubavitcher Rebbe would not be the Mashiach. If you would say that he could be the Mashiach if he's still alive, you know, that's debatable. We'll see when it happens. Now, once he died, and you say he could still be the Mashiach by resurrecting because there's a lone opinion uh, that is understood from being from the Abarbanel that uh, he could be Mashiach uh, by resurrecting, then you are in essence, uh, you know, clueless about all of the much more uh, extraordinary sages that lived before him. Anyone that lived before him is greater than him. This is a fact. Why is it a fact? It's one of the rules of the Torah. We have a degradation of the generations. Each generation that's born is lesser than the generation that preceded it, which means that the Lubavitcher Rebbe might be great, but guess what? The Tanya from Chabad is greater than him. And guess what? The Tanya is great, but the Baal Shem Tov is greater than him. And guess what? The Tanya is great, but the Arizal, uh, or, or let's say even go further, the, the Rambam and the Ramban are greater than all of them. And guess what? The Rambam is great, and the Ramban are great, but guess what? The Rabbi Akiva is greater than all of them. And Rabbi Akiva is fantastic, he's amazing, but why would you even bother going to Rabbi Akiva? Just go to King David himself coming back. So that's the point. Anyone that fantasizes the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, or any rabbi, that died in recent years is going to be uh, the uh, the Mashiach is simply foolish. It's just a foolish thing to think because you're in essence canceling out all of the greatest sages and forefathers we've ever had just because of somebody that you can see their picture. It's just it's a foolish thing to do. And I could tell you that if the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself was alive today, he would tell you it's a foolish thing to do also. Okay, let's take some questions from Facebook now. Let's see. Uh, let me see. Here we go. Uh, so, is it better nowadays to put two holy names to one child or oneself? What effect does names have? Uh, okay, I've, I've said that I've answered this in the past before. In, in Judaism, whatever you call yourself, whatever names you call yourself, you actually have to use because it has much more significance than people think. You know, usually people call their kids in the old days, people only had a uh, uh, one name, uh, and they would be called, you know, by that name, and uh, son of whatever your uh, father, whatever your father's name was, or whatever your profession was. 
So if let's say, for example, uh, his name was uh, uh, Shmuel, and he was a carpenter, so it was Shmuel the carpenter. Uh, that's in essence how names were in the previous generations. Today, people have first names and last names, and then in recent years, people also added middle names. Now, in Judaism, you're not going to find uh, you know, a, uh, middle names being the custom throughout all of the generations. There are some Chachamim that had two names, but what you will see is that they actually use their middle names. Meaning, like for example, the Chafetz Chaim, his name was Israel Meir. So Israel Meir, he used at all times. Meir was his middle name, was not uh, uh, his last name. But he would always refer to himself as Israel Meir. And the reason why is because if a person is given a uh, two names or a long name, they should never shorten it because it shortens their lifetime. Whatever your name is, that's in essence supposed to be, that's, that's your, in essence, that represents your lifetime. So you should never shorten whatever your, uh, whatever your name is, because in essence, a person could be shortening their lifetime. So for example, if a person's name is Michael, don't shorten, shorten your name to Mike. If, uh, 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 if your name is, uh, let's say, uh, Ovadia Yosef, then go by Ovadia Yosef. Don't just call yourself Yosef or Ovadia. Uh, or Joe, because you're shortening your name and you could, in essence, shorten your life. So it's important for a person to go by whatever they know they can commit to doing at all times. Meaning, if you're going to have a son or a daughter and you know that you'll be able to call them by both of their names at all times, then by all means, you can do that. But if you don't think that you can hold it up, you don't think that you're going to use that second name, then don't use the, don't call them a second name. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, next question. Uh, unfortunately, I lost my dear mother young, and I was told by many people that especially women should refrain from visiting the cemetery. I was very close with my mother, and I haven't visited her in several years. My uncle is coming down and would like to visit her too. What is the correct thing to do? The correct thing to do is for your uncle, if he wants to go visit your mother in the cemetery, he can do whatever he wants, but you do not go to the cemetery. It's a uh, very dangerous thing for a woman to do to go to the cemetery. It's not a bad idea. It's a dangerous idea. Uh, to, to, without going too deep into it, in so many words, a woman that goes into the cemetery could lose her ability to give birth for the rest of her life. So if you have no care whatsoever about ever giving birth, then by all means, you can go to the cemetery, hang out over there, sleep over there, do what you want over there. But if you care about your body and your life and everything else, do not go to the cemetery. That's the, uh, 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 that's, that's in essence the magnitude of it. Uh, when a uh, LGBTQ person dies, what is the proper thing to do? Uh, for example, pray for them or ignore them or, or say, okay, let's see. You know what? So people don't think I'm making stuff up. I'm going to give you an answer from the books. Let's see. Ah, there you go. Does it get any better than this? Open it on, on the page. Okay. When a person that's LGBTQ, or a person, a Jew, that desecrates Shabbat, or a person that is, you know, doesn't observe Torah and mitzvot, dies, what are the rest of the Jew, family, friends, and otherwise, supposed to do according to the Torah? Not according to emotions, according to uh, logic, according to whatever, you know, Things that people do. What are they supposed to do? The Rambam. In Ilchot Evil. These are the laws of mourning. In chapter 1, Alakha number 10, writes, 
we do not conduct mourning rites for all those who deviate from the path of the community, meaning people who throw off the yoke of mitzvot from their necks and do not join together with the Jewish people in the observance of the mitzvot, the honoring of the festivals or the attendance of synagogue and house of study. Meaning if a person is secular, we do not observe the laws of mourning for them. If a person does not observe Shabbat, if a person is you know, homosexual, if a person is simply not fulfilling Judaism, is not practicing Judaism, there is no obligation whatsoever of uh, uh, mourning over them. And in fact, it's the opposite. Instead, the Rambam says, they are like free and independent people, like the other nations. And similarly, we do not mourn for heretics, apostates, and people who inform on Jews to the Gentiles. Instead, their brothers and their other relatives wear white clothes, robe themselves in white, eat, drink, and celebrate for the enemies of the Holy One, blessed be He. Celebrate that they have perished. Concerning them, King David said in Psalm 139, verse 21, Those who hate you, O God, will I hate. This is the law of what you're supposed to do when someone that's an enemy of God, meaning someone that does not observe the Torah, dies. Do people observe this? Some do, most don't. Why? Because people use their emotions. And they feel like, oh, listen, even though she wasn't observant, she was my this and she was my that. But if you ask what the Torah says, I just gave you the law. This is the Rambam, you can open it. Ilchot Evel, chapter 1, Alakha number 10. Mamash, it was divine how you just saw you picked the book right off the shelf i have Hashem, hundreds of books behind me pick the book open the chapter open the page open the halacha it wasn't a you can see the question it's on facebook i didn't set this up so the point being is is that people think that uh uh we make stuff up and it's here this is the law anyone that wants to follow the law this is what the law is now of course people can have a problem with this when you have a problem with this you have a problem with god not me i didn't make the law and God did not ask me for my permission or my opinion when he made the law. Okay, next. Let's go with some TikTok. Uh, let's see. for questions I have comments but not much questions let's see why do I hate Chabad I when did you ever hear me say that I hate Chabad when did you ever hear me say that I hate Chabad I bring stories of Chabad I bring uh, the uh, many stories or many divret Torah from the uh, different rabbis of Chabad never say I hate Chabad I don't like lies and if you're telling me that Chabad of today is what really is Chabad, then you obviously don't know what Chabad is. I would, I would urge you to read some of the Tanya and some of the Chabad books and uh, know that what you have today is not Chabad, uh, especially when people are saying that the Lubavitcher Rebbe that died nearly three decades ago is Mashiach. This is, this is not, not Chabad. This is a bunch of people that uh, you know, want somebody to be Mashiach so much that they're simply ignoring what the Torah says. So this has nothing to do with Chabad. I don't dislike Chabad. I dislike lies. Uh is one that should drink until Haman is a good... Okay, yeah, come on. Uh, 
I need an answer. I don't have a question. I don't have a question, somebody. There's a lot of comments, so. Uh, Come on. Question. What's an answer? I think. Okay, we're gonna try to go to. There we go. Let's see. Where do I learn the proper way to, pr uh, to for Jewish prayer? Uh, a couple of ways. There is a uh, a book uh, called How to Be a Jew, and also that same author has a uh, book called uh, How How Jews Pray. I think it's called. That's one book. Uh, there is also uh, a um, many other books that you can get from Archscroll.com or Feldheim.com uh, uh, or uh, other Jewish uh, publishing houses that uh, give uh, uh, have countless books about how to pray. In addition to that, you know, a person would go to a synagogue and uh, asks the rabbi for some guidance of how to pray, you know, which siddur to buy and, and, and where to pray and how to pray. And it's, uh, it's not as difficult as it seems. Within a few months, you'll get the whole thing. Can you shower on Purim? Uh, yes, technically you can shower on Purim, but uh, it's, a, uh, it's not supposed to be a uh, fashion show. Uh, do all Sephardic synagogues not accept Converts? No, absolutely not. There is a, a most uh, Sephardic uh, and Ashkenazi communities accept converts with open arms. There are some exceptions. Uh, you know, in the Sephardic world, the uh, the Syrians are open about the fact that they do not accept converts, as far as they do not convert people, and they don't want uh, they don't allow the uh, converts to be members of their communities. Some say that they allow converts to attend their synagogues, uh, but they do not allow them to become members of the uh, synagogue or even attend their, uh, their schools. Uh, this is the, because the uh, Syrian Jews have a, um, a takana from their uh, uh, rabbis from about 100 years ago uh, that uh, was in essence trying to save uh, Syrian Jewry. Uh, at the time where there was a lot of uh, intermarriage and they were trying to save them and they made a takana and uh, unfortunately uh, by the time this takana was no longer needed the same rabbis that put it that put it in power uh, died and the, uh, the rabbis that followed them uh, did not want to cancel it and they actually re you know reiterate the takana every so often uh, many many great uh, chachamim including Aravavadi Yosef uh, frowned upon this takana uh, being used till this day. In fact, he came to the uh, uh, Syrian community multiple times, begging them to remove this takana. Uh, but uh, although they listened to Rav Avadya on many things, on this they did not listen to him. And he was very uh, unhappy about that. Uh, but uh, he was still very close to the Syrian community, and, uh, uh, and that's just the way it is. Uh, but with the exception of the Assyrian community, I don't believe anybody else openly is against uh, converts. Uh, of course, there are always going to be some people that are close-minded, racist, uh, ignorant, uh, like there is everywhere. Uh, just like the uh, you know the, the uh, uh, certain communities have 
uh, racism and, and, and sexism and, 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 and misogynist people and stupid people and ignorant people, you know, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not excluded from that. We have that too. We have dumb people among us also. Uh, we have some uh, really amazing people among us as well. Some of the greatest people that you're ever going to meet are going to be righteous Jews that uh, don't look like much, but the second they start talking, the second you see them in their life, you'll see that they are the greatest people in the world. Some of them look horrible, but they are really amazing. So you can't really judge by the looks or anything or even by community anymore. You have to simply meet people and talk to them and, and, and spend time with, uh, with Jewish people to really get to know them. But this does not mean that every Jew is amazing, that every Jew is perfect. There are some flaws. We all have flaws. We all have some deficiencies. We all have some screws uh, missing here and there. Uh, nobody's perfect in every community. Uh, but uh, as far as the, uh, the convert problem, you should know more than anything else. I have a lot of experience with converts. Quite frankly, I don't think that there is uh, really anybody, I would say, let's just be conservative. There's not many others out there that deal with converts as much as I do. Uh, you know, in the English-speaking world, this, it's just a, uh, it's, um, this is something that uh, I've been dealing with for, for many years. Uh, obviously, my wife is a convert. I've, uh, I know what uh, difficulties they go through, both on the uh, during, before, the after. I understand the whole concept, everything that's going on there, the emotional roller coaster. I have many students that are converts, that we've helped convert, that converted elsewhere as well. And I can tell you one thing. The same thing that applies to the rest of Am Yisrael and the rest of the world applies to the converts. It's just that the converts sometimes forget that. What do I mean by that? The Gemara in Masechet Chulin says, in uh, page 7a, says that a finger is not going to be pricked by a small little needle without there being a decree in heaven to permit that to happen. Meaning that nobody suffers even a small little pain in their finger without there being a decree in heaven that that person deserves it, needs it, is going to benefit from it. Point being is, it has to be decreed in heaven. Which means that regardless of whether you are naturally born Jewish, converted, converted as a result of doubt, uh, you know, were uh, you know, born into a Hasidish family, born into a secular family, born into a non-Jewish family, whatever you are, anything that happens to you, is because it was decreed in heaven and not by the community. So if there are problems in front of you, it's not because of the people that are in front of you, but rather because of it was decreed in heaven for it to happen. And Hashem is using those people to bring that problem. Now you ask, why would God use these people to give me problems? Ah, that's the question you should ask. And the answer is, you did something wrong. You did something that uh, needs to be changed. You need to change direction. Hashem is trying to get your attention elsewhere. The point is, he has an endless amount of reasons. The Gemara in Masechet Brachot says there's seven different reasons of why Hashem brings suffering. One of those reasons is because you're not going to understand. It's beyond the logic of man. The other reasons are either to elevate you, to test you, to bring you suffering. There's seven reasons. But the last one, which actually we learn in this week's parasha, parashat Kitisa, Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu that he will judge people the way he wants to judge them. He doesn't have to give us any, uh, any type of consideration. I'll give you the verse. You guys see it and you understand. Now, the important thing for a person to, to understand is that anytime you see that there is a problem, 
Don't blame the people in front of you. Blame the person that you see when you look in the mirror. Blame that person. Because if you blame other people, you're going to live and die hating everybody for something you caused to yourself. So of course, it's very easy to blame society for racism, for sexism, for your lackings, for this, for that. But the reality is that Hashem is not going to allow anyone to hurt you or to help you without you doing something in order to deserve that action. No one can help you or hurt you without you deserving that happening to you. And that's one of the things that a person must, must, must understand. So whether you're a convert or a natural born Jew, you have to have to always remember that Hashem is only going to allow anybody out there to cause you any type of harm because you did something. Now, in it. Okay, so after the uh, horrible golden calf uh, that uh, we caused a lot of damage that we still suffer from till uh, till this day. Uh, this is Pashat Kitisa. This is chapter uh, 32 in the book of Exodus. This is what we are reading this week. After this, Moshe Rabbeinu has to go back up to Mount Sinai. And he asked for forgiveness from Hashem. In essence, Moshe Rabbeinu came, went up to Mount Sinai 120 days total. 40 days, 40 nights. Came down with the uh, uh, Ten Commandments. Broke them. Went up again 40 days, 40 nights in order to ask for forgiveness on behalf of Am Yisrael. Uh, after we got the forgiveness, he had to go back again for another 40 days and 40 nights in order to receive the Torah again. So, in one of those times, as, as a sign in essence of a, uh, that he forgave them and, and uh, the, the closeness that Moshe Rabbeinu had with Hashem, Hashem says that he speaks to Moshe face to face. He speaks to him face to face as man would speak with his fellow. And... Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu then asks, uh, He said, uh, that um, if I have indeed found favor in your eyes, make your ways known to me so that I comprehend you or uh, you have found favor in my eyes. Meaning that Moshe Rabbeinu wants to know why Hashem does what he does and the Gemara says what does it mean why he does what he does he wants to know why he punishes the uh, or what it seems like punishes the righteous and uh, gives good to the wicked why does he do this it doesn't it doesn't mean it doesn't it's not logical look this guy just uh, you know you know went to kill somebody and instead of getting this guy arrested put in jail get a death penalty what do you see you see the guy becoming a president this guy is uh, just practiced homosexuality, and instead of this guy getting a, uh, you know, a punishment, he uh, gets uh, rewarded. He uh, wins the lotto or something. So, and on the other hand, some guy that is uh, nice, generous, helping people, and so on—you see, the guy can barely uh, make ends meet. 
So Moshe Rabbeinu wants to see why is it that some people looks like the righteous suffer, and the uh, and the wicked prosper. Now, of course, the Gemara goes into details, saying that uh, there are seven different reasons, like I said, of why uh, Hashem does what He does. Sometimes it's to test a person whether he loves him, whether he loves God or not, whether he believes in God. Sometimes it's to elevate them, to give them a test. But one of the things that Hashem says is that uh, you know that uh, that you simply are not going to understand. He simply is going to do whatever he wants to do, Be- not because he's God. And he can do whatever he wants to do is because the human mind is incapable of actually understanding the laws of God, the, the way that God runs the world. Because we see things as one-dimensional. We see things that are in front of us. Whatever is in front of us, that's what we understand. Hashem sees the entire picture. He sees the before, the during, the after. So what does that mean? If, let's say... You see somebody die. To your knowledge, this guy was a father. He was a good father. He was a nice guy. And for him to die in a car accident really is horrible. It looks like, you know, uh, but it looks like God, God messed up over here. Why, why is this guy die? And especially, he died in such a gruesome way where he died in a uh, car accident. And not only that, his, uh, his, his son saw it and his son is traumatized forever. Okay. So yeah, you're right. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But that's from your human perspective. Now part of our Torah knows, it says that we are not new. The original souls were all in Adam Rishon. Adam Rishon split into all of the souls that are in the world today. All of the Jewish people that were at Mount Sinai, whoever was extremely righteous, went to heaven and he's finished but whoever wasn't didn't complete their mission they messed up on something they made certain sins and they didn't repent for it had to be reincarnated and therefore all of the people that are alive today are reincarnations of their previous lives because they screwed up somewhere and many times they screwed up multiple times and have to be reincarnated multiple times so that same guy hypothetical example that guy in a, died in a car accident and uh, his son saw it, and it's horrible, it's, it's gruesome, and we should be sad about it. It's okay to be sad. It's okay, it's allowed to be sad. You should be sad that that happened. But don't question God because of it. Why? Because he sees the entire picture. And that guy that died in such a gruesome way, he came back to this life because he perhaps was careless while he was driving in his previous life, let's say drinking and driving. Again, this is a hypothetical example. I don't see the path, not profit. But he was, let's say, he was drinking and driving in his previous life, and he killed somebody else in front of their son in their previous life, and therefore had to come back in his life and get killed the same way, measure for measure. And who did he kill? The same guy that killed him. Just like Cain that killed Abel had to be reincarnated as the Egyptian in order for Moses to kill the Egyptian. Why? Because Moses was the reincarnation of Abel, who was killed by Cain. But, he, but Cain was also reincarnated as Itro. Why was he also reincarnated as Itro? Because he killed Abel because Abel had more wives than him. He had two wives, whereas Cain had one wife. And he killed them both because of jealousy. So he had to fix that, and he had to give a woman to the one he killed. 
How could he do that? Itro gave a woman, his daughter, to Moshe, which was Abel. So the point being is, is that, and this goes on and on, and, and there's no end to it. This is the Torah of Gilgulim, Torah of, of reincarnations. Darizal has a book called Shara Gilgulim. It talks about a lot of different things that are beyond the scope of this year. But nonetheless, the uh, important thing to know is that the perspective of God is nothing like the perspective of mankind. While we see a small little bump sticking out of the ocean, God sees the entire boulder that's under the ocean and everything that's around it and everything that was before it and everything that will be after it. While you see that one particular event in front of you, he sees everything that happened after it, everything that happened, that's going to happen before it and so on. Meaning he sees the entire picture. So while we are allowed and we should be sad when good people die, we're never allowed to question the reasoning of God. Why? Because he has a full picture and there's simply no point of questioning God. Instead of questioning God, we should question ourselves. Why did we deserve this to happen to us? What did we do to deserve such suffering that somebody that's beloved to us died? And of course, anyone that delves into their own actions will see that they have done something to deserve it. Now, it's important for a person to know that this particular part is a fundamental in Judaism because if a person understands that the uh, the logic of mankind, however smart they are, is simply inconsequential, zero, zilch, in comparison to the ultimate wisdom of Hashem, that eliminates a lot of the questions that people have about God of why did this happen, why did that happen, for example, people ask, people that are not familiar with the, our lectures or much Torah, always ask, where was God during the Holocaust? Instead of asking, where was God during the Holocaust? They should ask, where were the Jewish people before the Holocaust? How were they behaving in accordance to the Torah? And you'd see that if you look at the history books, if you look at the uh, speeches of the uh, Torah sages of the time, you'll see that the Jewish people weren't exactly doing very well. Assimilation was at all-time highs. Jews were marrying Gentiles. Jews were... Uh, converting to different religions of all types of idolatry christianity catholicism and so on and obviously they weren't following the ways of god and therefore they got punished but they got punished not for the sake of punishment per se but rather they got punished for the sake of preserving them this does not mean that the gentiles that killed them get rewarded for it they get punished for it because you know you don't have to be the gentile that hashem uses to kill uh, his son with uh, you chose to be that but needless to say, a person needs to know that there's no, nothing in the world that happens without God signing off on it. Nothing, nothing. No good or bad happens without God signing off on it. This is a very fundamental belief in Judaism. Next question. Why don't I talk about Jesus? Okay, you want me to talk about Jesus? Okay, let's talk about Jesus. Jesus was of Nazareth, was born a Jew. His mother was a wayward woman that cheated on her husband. Uh, and uh, she went with a uh, guy named Joseph, who uh, was a Gentile. And uh, she didn't want to let people know that she was really, uh, that this son came from somebody that she cheated. And therefore, uh, Joseph created the story that it was immaculate conception uh, because when uh, when you know he he was this Jesus was born this Joseph was not even in town and she was she was uh, a virgin so obviously she was a zona 
now, this Jesus was still a born Jew because his mother was Jewish, and therefore he was sent to a rabbi to learn Torah. And uh, the rabbi that he had was uh, Yeshua ben Perachia, one of the greatest sages that ever lived. He was a great sage, and he taught him a lot of Torah. But Jesus was, uh, unfortunately, because he was from such a wayward relationship, he had some uh, some wayward genes to him. Let's just say that. He was a womanizer. He liked to look at girls. He liked uh, all types of immodesty and immorality. He liked attention. And because of that, uh, this Jesus of Nazareth uh, did not respect his rabbi uh, well enough, where one day they were escaping. Uh, they were escaping. There was a decree to kill sages at the time. And uh, there was a uh, certain um, inn that accepted them to, you know, that they could stay in. And uh, the rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua ben Parachia, uh, complimented this, uh, these hosts. And uh, this Jesus thought that he was complimenting the way that the woman looks, because that's what he was thinking about. So he figured, since he's thinking about women, his rabbi must be thinking about women. So he said, nah, come on, rabbi, she's not even good looking. Look at her eyes. She looks like a frog. So the rabbi said, this is, this is what you think I think about? You think I think like you? So he rebuked them and he kicked them out. Now, after that, uh, Jesus came to his senses, realized he did something wrong, but you know he didn't come to his senses right away. Initially, he apologized just because he wanted to come back in. The rabbi saw that it's not an authentic apology. He didn't accept him uh, for the first two times. By the third time that he came back to him, the rabbi was already... Uh, ready to accept him back but Jesus was a chutzpan meaning he had a lot of nerve and he wanted what he wanted when he wanted uh, and uh, he came to the rabbi while the rabbi was praying and therefore the rabbi couldn't talk to him and instead motioned for him to you know wait after I finish praying but Jesus uh, took this as a rejection and decided that he's abandoning all efforts and instead he's going to use what he learned from the rabbi in order to get people to follow him as if he is an idol as if he is a leader and that's in essence what he did. He used all types of uh, uh, teachings that he had. Some say he used witchcraft. Others say that he used uh, the name of God that he uh, stole uh, uh, from, uh, from the rabbi. There's a specific name for, of, of God that a person can use in, in order to make all types of miracles happen. Point being is there was a big war against him because he was getting people to follow uh, him rather than follow God. Uh, and uh, eventually they, uh, you know, he got killed. So that's your brief story about Jesus. I actually have a few lectures about Jesus uh, on my uh, uh, website or on the YouTube channel. You just go to the YouTube channel with my name, type in the uh, name Jesus, and you'll see multiple lectures about Jesus and the real story behind him, uh, according to the Kabbalah, according to the Torah, the Talmud, and uh, you'll see that uh, he wasn't exactly uh, such a uh, nice person. Uh, not to uh, Jews or to Gentiles. And in fact, one of the things that you uh, ca cannot argue with is the fact that Christianity uh, took advantage of the weak uh, from its inception, meaning that Jesus did not get scholars to follow him. Uh, after he died, you know, the, uh, the uh, Christianity started after he died. And uh, Christianity started with people that were ignorant and illiterate. The weak among society uh that's who it started with eventually it grew it grew eventually it partnered up with the uh, uh with the roman empire the idolatrous nations that's where some of the holidays of christianity comes from it doesn't come from uh jesus's beliefs 
or 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 uh, or uh, practices, but rather it comes from the partnership between the idolatry of Rome and uh, and uh, uh, the Christian desire to uh, to have dominance. Uh, so that a common interest, and therefore that's where these things come from. Now, with that being said, the thing that Christianity did back then is what it's doing till this day where it took advantage of in order to get numbers in order to get people in order to convince people it didn't go after scholars it hated the scholars it called them the pharisees like i would be considered a pharisee at the time that christianity was running around they would want to kill me they would say things against me even though you're seeing everything that i'm saying is according to the torah i'm not uh trying to attack anyone i'm simply quoting to you what, what the torah says but they hated the pharisees they hated people that spoke the words of the, of the torah because it's the words that proved that the new testament is false jesus is just a man and not a god and not a son of god not anything and is obviously his background is very questionable is the background of his mother even more questionable and the background of the zona the prostitute that says that she saw him come back to a life is not exactly very reliable for some prostitute to to be a, a witness needless to say a witness that's reliable for an entire religion to be uh built on with that being said there's a lot of questions about everything having to do with christianity but how did they get so many people to follow them because they went to the people that were weak they were weak as far as uh intellect they were weak as far as they were not able to read so they couldn't you know check anything themselves and they were very poor this is the same exact thing as what christianity has been doing throughout all of the generations and even till this day the primary targets of missionaries are people that are weak are people that are not educated and in fact one of the prime places that uh, the missionaries uh, go after uh, is ignorant Jewish people, secular Jewish people that have never really learned Torah or have a, big, a very big uh, qualm against the Torah because that's a bad experience or whatever. And that's who they get to follow Christianity. They don't get any real big rabbi or Torah scholar to adopt Christianity. Uh, they don't get anyone because it's simply not possible. Anyone that's well learned within five minutes can know that Christianity is a man-made religion full of idolatry that's against God. So if you want to know the truth about Christianity, I have a couple of lectures, videos, two to three hours each uh, discussing it. There's other lectures I can recommend to you as well that you can watch and educate yourself in order to remove yourself from this religion that you call truth which is really idolatry and actually save yourself because your priests and your pastors the only thing that they're doing is buying themselves new jets and new buildings they're not saving anybody the uh the, the miracles that they uh they say they do everyone knows it's fake the uh the type of society that they're building is not a society to be uh to be uh, uh proud of why because you see that in essence what they're telling you is that you can make any sin you want as long as you can pay for it and anyone that tells you that you can make any sin you want as long as you can pay for it either through you know giving money to the church uh, and believing in Yoshke, believing in jesus and in essence that gives you a get out of jail free ticket that means that you believe that hitler and osama bin laden and saddam hussein and all of the biggest terrorists in the world all of the serial killers all the psychopaths in history so long as they believed in jesus that means that they're in heaven and that's where you want to go to you want to go to heaven with a person like hitler you want to go to heaven with a person that uh, committed genocide that's what you want obviously no normal person thinks that those people are in heaven except a person that's so fanatic that they don't even see the difference between right and wrong anymore 
So hopefully you're not one of those people. Hopefully you're one of those people that wants to really uh, go with the truth, go in a direction of what God wants from you. And I would, uh, you know, really, really beg you for your own good to go check the truth for yourself. Now, for the other person that has asked about the Quran, I have no problem talking about the Quran. In fact, today is the time that you should talk about the Quran. Why should you talk about the Quran today? Because today, in fact, uh, in a uh, exactly a um, 24 hour, less, less than 24 hours is the exact time to talk about the Quran. Why? Because in the next 24 hours, the average Jew that may have not gone to synagogue the entire year will find out one of the primary reasons of why the Quran is also a man-made fake document that's not divine. How could they find this out in the next 24 hours? Very simple. In the story of Megillat Esther, this is part of the Tanakh. Everybody believes in the Tanakh. The Jews, the, uh, the Christians, the Muslims, everyone says the Tanakh is real. Part of the Tanakh is Megillat Esther. Esther, the story of Purim, is in the Tanakh. It's one of the books, one of the 24 books. Now, in the Tanakh, we have a character, the evil person that we talked about all night, Haman. Haman the Amalekite, right? Haman, everyone knows Haman. Haman was from Hodu. He was from India. Now, Haman was an Amalek. Haman was an evil guy, right? Now, the problem is that the Quran says that Haman was friends with Pharaoh. The very same Pharaoh that enslaved the Jewish people in Egypt. But the problem is, that was over a thousand years after Egypt was destroyed. After everything over there was annihilated except the Jewish people. So how could Haman be friends and have conversations according to the Quran with Pharaoh that already died centuries beforehand? And in fact, the very same Quran also says that Moses, that we learn about in this week's parasha, Parashat Kitisa. Okay? He had a brother named Aaron. He had a sister named Miriam. The Quran says that this Miriam was the mother of Jesus, the Christian God. How could Miriam be the mother of Jesus that lived 1500 years after her? if she already died in the desert and Jesus wasn't born yet. How could you say in the Quran that Moses was the uncle of Jesus? Obviously, there's mistakes in the Quran. And with mistakes like that, you don't need to look at the Quran any further. Why? Because you already see, if you have such mistakes that the average five, six-year-old Jew or non-Jew Go see this for yourself in the Quran. Now, that are indisputable. These mistakes are there. Why would I spend any other time looking at the Quran? Why should I spend time looking at the Quran that tells me that there's going to be a prophecy at the end of days where the tree and the rock is going to help the Muslim kill the Jew? Where the rock says to the uh, Muslim, a hey, Muslim, Muslim, come over here. The Jew is hiding behind me. That's the book you want me to read about? That's the Quran you want me to teach about? Okay, so I taught you the Quran. 
now do yourself a favor go get yourself torah that is divine that is from god that's not from some illiterate guy that says that in the desert by himself the angel gabriel talked to him go and read the real torah torah from god that is proven scientifically and every other way you could possibly imagine and certainly does not have such mistakes especially mistakes that a five-year-old is going to find out about tomorrow now you learned about the Quran. I'm a so-called African-American and Ashkenazim Jew. Okay, good for you. Never heard of such a thing, but uh, good for you. Not so sure what people are drinking these days. Uh, okay, all right, let's get some questions from Facebook. Dear Abba Ruben, is there a difference between an obligation of how a Jew and a non-Jew treat an idol worship missionary? And is there a difference between how you treat a Jewish idol uh, worship missionary? Yes, there is a very big difference. Um, now, again, if you're talking about you're working somewhere or you're walking somewhere and you know that this guy is an idol worshiper and a missionary, the best thing to do is simply avoid them. Avoid them, don't talk to them, that's it. Uh, but if this person comes and tries to missionize on you and tries to convince you to go towards idolatry, uh, if he is a, uh, a Gentile, uh, again, ideally, walk away from it. But if you, uh, uh, you want to talk to the uh, Gentile that's an idol worship missionary, you're allowed to debate. To the Jew, idol worship missionary, you're not allowed to debate him. That's one of the things. Generally speaking, the uh, treatment of a Jewish idol worshiper is much more strict than a non-Jewish uh, idol worshiper. I have a lecture uh, from about six years ago. Uh, the talk that said, I think it's called, "Are we allowed to learn Torah from an idol worship or from a missionary?" So there's a lot of laws from the Rambam and other places in that lecture. I would highly recommend you watch that. Next question: Hello, Rabbi. Do women who are taking care of a newborn baby still have to fast if they're not breastfeeding? Uh, if she's not breastfeeding, then there's no reason for her not to fast. Uh, you know, I mean, if the fact that she is uh, uh, you know, taking care of the baby this is something that she's going to do uh, for, for a long time. So this does not absolve her from the fast. Uh, but if she just gave birth in the last 30 days, then, you know, it's a different story. But if she's, if the baby is already, you know, six months, a year old or something like that, then yeah, she has to fast. Uh, if she doesn't feel good and, uh, you know, she starts, uh, you know, you know, she finds herself uh, weakening to the point where she's losing consciousness and things like that, then obviously then, you have to, uh, uh, you know, take a drink or, you know, break the fast in such a case. And tomorrow's fast is an easy fast, meaning it's, it's, it's uh, more lenient in that regards. But only if it's necessary. Not that you just simply uh, ignore this fast altogether just because you gave birth a few years ago or a few months ago. No. Uh, okay, next question. How was Esther allowed to marry a Hashverosh when he was a Goy? Very good question. I'm surprised it took this long for people to ask this question. So, 
it's important to understand the Megillah for what it is. Meaning, the story is there where it's talked about how Achashverosh was the king of the world at the time, 127 countries. Meaning that what he said went. When his own queen did not want to appear naked in front of everybody, he simply killed her. So it shows that this is a king that is not uh, you know, um, questioning uh, whether he will kill somebody or not. Uh, so he simply killed whoever he wanted to kill. That's number one. So when he decided to marry, uh, decided to have a bunch of women that are going to come, no one can say, no, I don't want to send my daughter there. Everyone was commanded to send their daughters, uh, you know, and, and, and eventually even their wives, to Achashverosh, and he would simply test out whatever he wanted to test out, when he wanted to test out, and uh, return only if unused. So that's unfortunately the, uh, the dictatorship that they had at the time. Now, which means that Esther did not have a choice of going or not going. It's either her life or go to Achashverosh and hope she doesn't get picked. Now, once she was chosen to be the, the, uh, the, uh, the wife of Achashverosh, there's a couple of things that said. Number one is that the, the, there's three cardinal sins for Jews. One is you're, you're not allowed to murder, not allowed to idol worship, and not allowed to have uh, uh, immorality, not allowed to have intimacy with uh, somebody that uh, is forbidden to you. Uh, and if those three things are in front of you, you have to die and not sin. Meaning, if somebody says, go to a church or die, you have to die and not go to a church. Uh, if somebody says, go pray to some cow in, in, in India or die, you have to die and not pray to that cow. Uh, if somebody says, uh, uh, go kill this person or die, you have to die. You're not allowed to kill somebody to save your own life. Not allowed to. Uh, so those are, you know, that's two of the cardinal sins. Then there is the third one, which is immorality. You're not allowed to have sex with somebody uh, to, in order to save your life. Meaning, if they say, go and rape this woman or die, you have to die. You cannot rape any woman. If they say, go and have sex with your sister, your mother, uh, you know, or die, you have to die and not do those things. If they say, go and do that with somebody else's wife, or die, you have to die, and you cannot do those things. Why? Because these are considered immoralities. Now, for a woman, it's different. Why is it different? The first two are the same. If they say to a woman, a Jewish woman, serve an idol or die, she has to die. If they say to a Jewish woman, a uh, um, murder somebody or die, she has to die. She cannot, uh, she cannot kill somebody for, to save her own life. But if they say to a Jewish woman um, to be intimate with somebody in order to save her life, she's allowed to do it in order to save her life. Why? Because the Gemara calls it Isha Karka Olam. The woman is passive in regards to intimacy. She is, she, you know, she's the one that's receiving because of that, she doesn't actually have to do anything. Uh, the, the, other, the male is the one that's doing all of the things. So in essence, she is in essence, she's not doing anything. And therefore, she doesn't deserve to die in order to just, just sit there. And unfortunately, you know, that horrible thing happened to her. So with that being said, the, this is the halachic uh, uh, reason of why Esther did not have to kill herself, did not have to die in order to avoid being intimate with uh, Furthermore, the Arizal teaches us that Esther learned Kabbalah from Mordechai. Mordechai, as I told you, he lived 400 years. He was the greatest sage of the generation. 
And Mordechai taught Esther different things in the Torah that are beyond the scope of what I'm going to teach you today. But in so many words, he taught her how to lashbia uh, shedim. He taught her how to force demons to do what she wanted them to do. So what she would do is she, in essence, forced one of the demons that she was in control over to go and portray the, itself like it's her, meaning the demon put a uh, costume of, of Esther, looked exactly like Esther, and go be intimate with, uh, with the Hashverosh. And this is what was going on for a while. Hashverosh, every time he would want to be with Esther, she would send her demon to be with him. But this changed after the, uh, when, when Mordechai told her that you have to go to the king and tell him that uh, to save you and the people. Meaning you have to offer yourself. You have to offer yourself to the king and not the demon, but yourself. And that's why uh, Esther initially was reluctant, but then she says, if I'm lost, then I'm lost. Meaning that after this, uh, I, the, you, uh, you know, I can no longer uh, have the same relationship with you, Mordechai. As I did. Why? Because Esther was actually married to Mordechai. And he originally adopted her. And then she, he married her later, you know, years later. Uh, when she was obviously old enough. But uh, once she uh, married Achashverosh. Uh, if she was intimate with Achashverosh one time. He was not allowed to be with her anymore. So that's why she sent the demon to Achashverosh. Now. When. Mordechai told her to offer herself to, uh, uh, to uh, Achashverosh for the sake of saving Am Yisrael. She says, this is where our marriage is over. Because I, you know, once I'm intimate with Achashverosh one time, I can no longer be with you. And that's, that's in essence what the verse is actually saying. So, she was allowed to do that for the sake of saving Am Yisrael because of what I explained in the first aspect. And uh, she tried not to do it uh, as I explained in the second point. But very good question. Uh, someone asked me today, what is my nationality? How should I answer? I believe the Jewish people are a nation, but some say it's a religion. Uh, Jewish people are everything. Judaism is everything, but uh, there's a background. The background that your uh, grandparents are from. Your grandparents are from uh, one of the countries in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, or you know, from Spain, from uh, Iraq, from... Uh, Argentina it could be, it could be from, uh, you know, wherever your grandparents are from, or from Poland if you're Ashkenazi, or from uh, different parts of uh, Russia, whatever that is, that's in essence the, uh, the nationality, if you will. Uh, but Judaism is, is generally the same. It's not uh, whether you're from that place or that place, it's the same exact Judaism. There are certain uh, customs that are different between the Jews of Europe versus, uh, which are called Ashkenazim, versus the Jews of the Middle East and Spain, which are called the Sephardic, uh, there's certain customs that are different, but you know, as far as the Torah itself is exactly the same. There's no difference. Uh, okay, let's see what, go back to TikTok questions. Okay, I see you guys asking questions. Okay, here we go. Okay, some guys send me a bunch of sandwiches, whatever this is. Don't send sandwiches, just send questions. Uh, okay. We feed our animals before ourselves, but we water ourselves before our animals. Okay, okay, ah, okay, so, 
the uh, he's asking about why is it that the Torah says that there's a law that uh, you're obligated if you have an animal you have to feed the animal before you feed yourself but uh, if uh, if it's drinking you have to drink uh, yourself before you uh, give your animal why so when it comes to food usually the animal depends on if it's a domesticated animal it depends on its master it cannot go get food on its own and therefore the uh, the master of the animal has to uh, take this into account and feed the animal before they feed themselves as part of their uh, you know their their morality uh, but when, when it comes to drinking drinking is typically uh, not uh, just because somebody is a uh, wants to drink but rather it's, it could be a, a life issue life and death issue people typically do not uh, die from uh, hunger they die from thirst uh, so uh, that's why you uh, are obligated to drink first before you uh, give your animal to drink because the human life is superior to the animals who are these people you're talking about and what is their importance not really sure what you're talking about Where's the questions? Oh, free Palestine people back. Okay, free Palestine. I told you guys, Palestine is free. It's now called Israel. It's called Israel, and it's free, and it's prospering, and it has a uh, thriving economy and wonderful people and a very good uh, defense for the Palestinian uh, missiles. Um... We just don't have a defense for stupid politicians. That's the only thing that we don't have a defense for. Uh, you're acting like you're the one occupying Palestine. Yeah, I'm not exactly occupying Palestine, but even if I was, I'd still say the same thing. Uh, no, no, come on. Are you a Zionist or Orthodox? If you've listened to five words that I said today, you'd know what I am, and that's certainly not a Zionist. Zionists are atheists. I'm Jewish on my dad's side. Can I convert with Chabad or only with an Orthodox community? Uh, interesting question. I mean, Chabad is Orthodox. The, the Chabad is an Orthodox uh, community. It's just that uh, I don't know of uh, any Chabad that actually deal with, uh, with conversion. Typically, uh, people that are, uh, that are part of Chabad communities that want to convert are sent elsewhere. Uh, that's from my experience. Now, if you are part of a Chabad community where the rabbi helps with conversion and sends you to a Bedin, by all means, go to a Bedin. The main thing, main thing that I recommend for people is to go to a Bedin, to a Jewish court that is recognized by the Rabbanut of Israel. Not to just go to just, uh, you know, Bedin that's unknown by anybody, because if you do, you'll, you'll create a lot of problems. And I recommend you uh, watch the lectures on my um, page. Uh, that have to do with conversion. There's a whole playlist that have to do with conversion, talking about these issues and why you should only go to a recognized Bedin, uh, you know, uh, and uh, rather than some uh, informal Bedin. But the point being is that if the Chabad is a recognized Bedin, by all means, I just don't know of one. Okay. 
can you be Jewish and not religious? Uh, yeah, of course you could be Jewish and not religious, in a meaning that a person is a uh, born a Jew because their mother is Jewish, so they have the uh, you know the, the, they're Jewish as far as the halacha is concerned, as far as the law is concerned, and but as far as uh, their practice, they're not following Judaism, which means that if they die without practicing Judaism, then they'll go to Gainom and never come out. They'll be judged in a horrific most horrific possible way. But if a person is a, um, uh, does tshuva, repents, and starts practicing, then whatever their misdeeds are from the past, they could, uh, they could fix that while they're alive. But once a person dies, they can't fix it. Uh, are you Bukharian? Are you Bularian? What? Would you record that is recognized? I have no idea what you're saying. I'm sorry. Do you have simcha? Do I have simcha? Baruch Hashem, yeah. Uh, more than you could imagine. Uh, oh. Thoughts on Israel versus Palestine. I've said this before already. Uh, I guess you guys weren't there, but... Uh, Palestine is a group of people that are criminals that uh, came from Jordan, came from Egypt, came from uh, different Middle East and Arab countries that simply wanted to go to war with the Jewish people. That's who Palestine is. There is no actual country of Palestine. There never was. And if you're going to say, no, no, we already have a history from 7,000 years ago, Please, the Philistines that are mentioned in the Torah, first of all, it was not 7,000 years ago, because the Torah itself was only given 3,300 years ago. Uh, second of all, uh, they have nothing to do with the Arab Muslims of today. The Philistines were idolaters, they were closer to, uh, to uh, being uh, Egyptians from the time of Paro, than they are to uh, being a, uh, the uh, Arabs of today. They have nothing to do with each other. And in fact, the Egyptians of today have nothing to do with the Egyptians of Pharaoh from 3,000 years ago. These are com two completely different nations. Uh, and in fact, even the, uh, the Greeks, the Greeks of today have nothing to do with the Greeks that caused a lot of damage to the Jewish people from a couple thousand years ago. The Greeks that, caused, you know, that live today have nothing to do with the Jews. The Greeks that caused that uh, damage to the Bet Migdash and part of the Hanukkah story, they were the Syrian Greeks. You know, the uh, Alexander uh, the Great, he, uh, after he died, his kingdom split into multiple parts, into four parts. And the one that, uh, the Greeks that went to Syria, they are the ones that actually caused all the damage to the Jewish people. Not the Greeks that live like in Greece today on the islands, hanging out with, you know, white houses. That's not the Greeks that we're talking about. So... It's, it's important for a person to know a little bit of history. Now, as far as the Palestinians, they have no history. Their history, in so many words, started at the, uh, you know, the last hundred years where they decided that they want to go use politics in order to continue their hatred towards the Jews, which has been around since the beginning of Islam. It's not a new thing, even though there were times of peace between the Jews and the Muslims. 
and there are some very nice Muslims in the world, the reality is that there is a very long history of hatred between the two nations. Uh, whether it's in Morocco, that had a lot of peace, but also hatred there, or it's in Turkey, that had a lot of hatred and some peace at times, or it's in Syria, that had a lot of hatred and some peace, or it's in Egypt, that had hatred and peace, and, and so on and so forth. There, Jews and, and the Muslims have lived among each other for many years. You know, the, uh, but the reality is, there is constant animosity between them. But throughout the generations, the main difference between the two has been a religious belief. Religious belief, the Muslims typically wanted to force the Jewish people to become Muslims. That was the main thing, and they killed and massacred us and raped our women for, for many, many years. You're never going to have a storybook tell you that a bunch of Jews went and uh, massacred a bunch of Muslims and raped their women and married them and so on. That you will never find in the storybooks, but you will find that in the Arab storybooks and in the Christian storybooks, because that's just reality. Now, but the theological difference between the nations, the Islam and Judaism, uh, and also uh, the Christians and the Jews, has generally been a theological belief, a belief issue. What the Palestinians did over the last 80 or so years is turn that theological debate into a political debate by simply taking advantage of ignorant politicians and stupid people and simply declaring themselves a people that came out of nothing and came out of nowhere and that they are somehow owners of a land that they have no concept of and they never developed and they never did anything in. And yes, even though they lived in it, it's not like they lived in it for uh, uh, longer than the Jews have. Uh, and, and the reality is that they use this uh, as their argument to live in a land they care less about. Why? Because the Palestinians, like I said, came from Egypt, came from Jordan, came from uh, 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 Iran, came from everywhere else, all the Arab countries. And if you look at any of the Arab countries, you could literally take all of Israel and put it in their pocket. Look, a tiny little Israel, a little tiny little Israel. It's smaller than Florida. You can fit Florida on like the side pocket of Egypt. You can fit you could fit Israel in the side pocket of of of, uh, of Iraq, side pocket of Egypt, side pocket of Jordan, tiny little Israel. So in so many words, it's not like the Jordanians ran out of room, or the Egyptians ran out of room, or the Saudi Arabians ran out of room, and therefore they had to go to Israel. No, they wanted to express their hatred towards the Jews in a political fashion, and that's why they did it by taking advantage of the ignorance of people and simply political interests. So they created the so-called Palestine. But there's no real Palestine. Palestine, as far as the name, that was a uh, mockery that was uh, 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 created uh, as, as a result of anti-Semitism from the, uh, uh, the, the empires that before, before the Arabs even came into the picture. This is from the... Uh, uh, I believe the uh, Romans came out with the name originally. Then later on, the British took it. But the point being is, there is no Palestine. Palestine is not a people. Palestine is not a... Uh, now, I know people that live in Palestine today, they consider themselves Palestinians. And you know what the funny thing is? The people that are not even Palestinians, like Americans, or, or just people that are just simply anti-Semitic. They could be Americans, they could be Europeans, or whatever. They say free Palestine, as if they've ever been there. 
as if, they, as if they even understand what Palestine is, as if they've ever been to Palestine, as if they even know what Palestine is. They just see BBC and they see other news networks highlighting the, uh, their own agenda of how they want to uh, demonize the Jewish people. And they say, oh yeah, so these, uh, these Jewish people must be uh, predators. They don't realize this is all propaganda and nonsense. So if you want to go and ask the actual Palestinian public that lives in Israel, you'll see that the overwhelming majority of them, and by overwhelming majority, I don't mean like 51%. I mean like 90 plus percent of the Palestinians that live in Israel. And there's millions of them. Several millions of them live in Israel. You ask them, why don't you go back to uh, Egypt? Why don't you go back to Palestine? Why don't you go back to uh, Saudi Arabia? I'll tell you, are you crazy? I love Israel. Well, why would I leave? No, no. It's just, even if we give you the money, we'll give you the money to go over there. Like, no, I like it here. Why? He said, here I have freedom. Here I have rights. Here I can vote. Here I can work. Here I can do everything. Over there, nothing. Nothing. What do you mean? How do you have nothing? The, uh, the government of America, the government in Europe, of the UN, all these governments are giving the Palestinian leaders billions of dollars every year. How do you not have work in, in, in the Palestinian land? Oh, that's because it goes to the leaders. Arafat what do you think? He was, he was, when he died, there was literally hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in all types of banks all over the world. They're still trying to find out where he hid all the money. Meaning the biggest enemies of the Palestinians are not Jews. The biggest enemies of the Palestinians are their own leaders. If somebody would simply educate them, they would know that they, uh, this is to be true. And that's why there are many of them that actually are not anti-Semitic. Who's anti-Semitic? Usually the people on the internet that think they know what the Palestinian and Israeli conflict even has anything to do with anything. If you knew anything, you would know there is no such thing as a Palestine country. There is no such thing. It's simply, you're not going to find it in any of the history books. You go 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000, you're not going to find any. There is no such thing. But if you go ask about the Jordanians, you'll find. Egyptians, you'll find. Uh, the, the, the Mongols, you'll find. Chinese, you'll find. Japanese, you'll find. Jews, of course you'll find. Palestinians, nothing. No peak English, no peak Arabic, no peak Hebrew, no peak nothing. No find, no book, no nothing. Why? Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. But you can find out about them in the archives of the Saudi Arabians. You'll find about them in the archives of the Egyptians. You'll find out about them in the archives of the Jordanians. Why? Because that's what they are. That's where they came from. They came from those countries. There's no such thing as Palestinian. So educate yourself and stop making yourself look stupid. Please. You're not uh, dealing with somebody that's ignorant. I love how everybody's hating just because he has a valid point. Uh, let's see. The current people of Saudi Arabia play, playing Maka. They don't. Okay, I don't know what you're saying. Sorry. Some country. Why should we leave? Uh, Israel leaving Palestine. Okay. The funny thing is that most of you probably don't even live there, so you have no concept of what you're talking about. At least I was born in Israel, so I know what I'm talking about. But you know what? Let, let's let's approach this a different way. If you have 
Let's just try this. Maybe maybe it'll come to your senses. If you have a uh, America, right? Everybody looks up to America to a certain extent, even though it's a lot of craziness going on over here. America. How did America come to be? How did America come to be? Did America come to be just because a uh, bunch of guys just decided that, uh, yeah, we want to make an America? No, there was war. There was war. They came, they war, they conquered. That's it, the end. How did the different European nations come to be? War. They came. They took over, the, you know, they killed a bunch of people. They won the war. That's it. It became France. It became Spain. It became uh, England. It became all these different things. War, right? Meaning that the winner is the one that wins the war. Now, no one says, hey, listen, you French, listen, you English, listen, you Spaniards, you listen, you Turks, you guys are wrong. Give back the land. Why? Because it's our land. But we won. We won the war. If it was your land, you would have won. It's not your land because we won it. How? We beat you up. Simple. And if you keep talking, we'll beat you up again. And that's what happens in the world. That's what happens. Now, if you go in America, not too long ago, American Indians were here. The Americans didn't like it. So they tortured a bunch of them. They killed a bunch of them. Not saying it's right. It's horrible what they did to them. The whole Thanksgiving story is behind it. They call it Thanksgiving. The American Indians call it a Holocaust. So it's a little bit different perspective of the two. But in so many words, the Americans killed a bunch of American Indians because they were living in a place that the Americans wanted. Now, the, it was called American after that. Now, if the American Indians, even though they were gifted as a result of, you know, political correctness and, 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 and seeking for peace and, and, and all types of other negotiations and all other types of reasons, the American Indians were given all types of land that is, in essence, like a country within a country. But the reality is, if a bunch of American Indians came to the U.S. government, came to the government and said, listen, we thought about it. We want our stuff back. The whole thing. Get out of here. You guys go to, uh, go where you came from. Go to England. Go to uh, Africa. Go to wherever. Go to hell. We want our land back. What would the Americans do? Americans would say, thank you very much. Security, get them out of here. What do you mean? It's our land. No, no, no. Get them out of here. Get them out of here. In fact, if he says another word, throw them in jail. And if he says two words, give him a few beatings. Remind him that he's in America. Not in uh, what he thinks is uh, his home country. He's in America. Why? Because we won the war. That's what the Americans would say. Now, if you go to England, go to England. England owns land everywhere. Land everywhere. No, they call them colonialists and all that good stuff. Fine. Call them whatever you want. It's reality of life. Now, all of those countries come to England and say, hey, listen, you are British, you sons of guns, you took our stuff. We want it back. We want it back. Get out of our land. Get out of here. The English would say, uh, which one do you want? The atomic bomb on the right side or the atomic bomb on the left side? Which one do you want? The right or the left? Which one do you want? Pick. Slap you on the right, slap you on the left, or kick you in the... What do you want? Why? It's our land. No, there's no land. We won the war. We won. It's no longer yours. Why? Because we won. The end. When Nazi Germany was conquering the world in World War II, before they lost the war, guess what? The land became theirs until they lost. 
No one said, oh, give it back. It's our land. No, no, it just doesn't happen. Why? You lost. It's a war. You lost. Going back to our point. The Palestinians argue that, oh, it's our land, even though it's not, and there's no such thing as Palestinians. But let's just say we'll play along with the dumb logic of people that simply want to invent history. Let's say we invent it. We play along. Mr. Palestinian, Ahmadinejad and his brother, comes to the Israeli government, and he finds probably one of his brothers in the Israeli government because they're stupid and they have terrorists in their government. But nonetheless, say, listen, we want the land back. It's ours. What do you mean it's ours? You lost the war. Whether it's the Six-Day War or the Yom Kippur War or every other war and the continuous war. And guess what? You'll continue losing the wars. There is no your land. Your best bet (coughs) is simply to live along and play along. That's your best bet. That's your best bet. There is no exiling the Israelis and sending them to Uganda or sending them to America or sending them to wherever you want to send. There is no such reality. It doesn't exist. Now, the only way that such a thing would exist if there was a war. But guess what? We have God on our side and God wins our wars. Not IDF, not the Air Force, not America, not the anything else. God wins our wars. And God also decides if we're going to lose a war. And I bet you, anything you want, we're going to win any war. Why? Because God is on our side. So you can play along, go along, and just simply live your life in a free country called Israel, and you could even pretend in your mind it's called Palestine. But if you want the Jewish people to leave, where you want them to go? We're home. You don't go anywhere from home. We're not growing up and moving out. It's our home. How? Either you use the biblical reason that God gave it to us, or you can simply use the muscle reason. We want it in a war. Whatever reason is good for you, use it. Live by it and move on with your life. How you like them apples? Shuarma. Hummus. And our hummus is better, by the way. Next question. Someone asked me today, what man, I read that already. If it's not possible to go to a synagogue, can I just read the Megillah of Esther at home? As far as fulfilling the mitzvah obligation, the mitzvah obligation can be fulfilled only if you read it or hear it being read from a scroll, not from a uh, book. But if you have no option, you have no option. You read it from a book. But the mitzvah itself is fulfilled by reading it or hearing it being read from a scroll. Hello, Rabbi, can you clarify what not missing a word listening to Megillah entails? If someone loses their place following along with the reader but was able to hear the words... Uh, are all the words yeah okay as long as you hear the words being said from the Baal Kore, from the reader of the Megillah you're good uh, try not to lose your, your place in the Megillah but certainly if as long as you could hear it you're okay what if you're a junior uh, if you're referring to the same question as the one before you about hearing from the Megillah junior meaning you're under 13 as a boy under 12 as a girl then it's okay. But if you are 12 or 13, uh, then you you considered an adult according to Judaism. Rabbi, you mentioned that the 
Morning Megillah reading is more important than the night. Why is that the case? No, it's both. Both are important. You have to fulfill both uh, both uh, Megillah readings, not uh, not just one. Uh, I don't particularly like to eat meat or poultry. Can I eat dairy, a vegetarian, for Sudat Purim Day? Yes, you are allowed to eat dairy or vegetarian on the uh, Purim uh, uh, Seuda, uh, even though the Gemara says that the way that a uh, man is usually uh, uh, happy is by drinking wine and eating meat. But if those things do not make you happy, uh, then yeah, you could eat dairy or vegetarian. It's no problem. Uh, what are the laws of drinking alcohol in general? Uh, well, first off, alcohol for Jews has to be kosher, like everything else. It, the, uh, the, the drink has to be kosher. Uh, you can't drink things that are not kosher, especially if it's wine, uh, grape products. It has to be kosher. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, as far as uh, drinking, uh, you know, if you're assuming you're drinking uh, uh, alcohol that's kosher, the key should be if, if drinking to enjoy the taste and if you want to get a buzz, fine. But to never get to the point where you lose control and you become a desecration uh, of God's name, where you're, you know, you're not able to stand and you're, you're saying stupid things and you simply are an embarrassment to be next to. If you want to have a couple of drinks to, or a drink or whatever it is that's going to cause you to have a little bit of a good feeling, a buzz, that's not a problem. But uh, never get to a point where you are... Uh, you know, in a point where you're not really uh, all there because then you're not allowed to pray to Hashem and uh, you're not allowed to go to a synagogue, you're not allowed to learn Torah. Uh, it's a very, very big problem and I would recommend you learn the lecture that I did about uh, addiction because uh, it talks about different laws in regards to addiction uh, which includes both alcohol as well as drug addiction and different laws that Rav Moshe Feinstein talks about uh, in regards to people that drink too much. Uh, hello, dear Rabbi, from the, bottom of my heart, my, from the bottom of my kidneys and soul, can you teach us to sing to Hashem? What one must, what one must one do to reach a level to write one piyut to Hashem? Learn a lot of Torah. When a person learns an enormous amount of Torah... The, the words of a Torah will turn into music. Uh, one of the uh, favorite songs in my house is a song that was written by the Baba Sali. The Baba Sali, even though he was a great sage, a Dayan, extraordinary Talmud Chacham, a Kabbalist and everything else, but he was also, he wrote a very famous song. And many of the holy songs that you hear at Shabbat tables were actually written by holy Kabbalists. Holy sages, people that learn enough Torah that literally the words turned into a uh, music. Uh, so if one wants to write real Jewish music, I would highly recommend for them to learn a lot of Torah. Now let's go back to the Twitter, uh, to uh, TikTok uh, questions. Palestinian flag was an invention. Yes, exactly, like I said. Uh, let's go... Looking for the questions. Do Jews accept Adam and Eve as the first? 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's, we don't call it Adam and Eve, we call it Adam v'chava. Eve is uh, uh, what, uh, I guess it's translated in other languages, but uh, Eve is called Chava. Um, and uh, yeah, it comes from our Torah that uh, Adam was created first, then uh, uh, Chava, his wife, uh, also known as Eve, was created uh, thereafter. And in fact, there was a uh, speaker uh, at uh, TED, speak, uh, TED Talk, that uh, there was a, uh, I believe she was a microbiologist or some type of uh, expert in the uh, uh, field of DNA. And they said that they tracked down uh, DNA all the way back as much as they can. And they uh, said that there is, a, there has to be a single mother to mankind. Uh, so in so many words, there has to be a chava uh, to all of mankind. So uh, whether you want to call her Chava or you want to call her Eve, you want to call her DNA. <laughs> uh, the Torah has been proven right many, many times. Uh, now those that don't want to believe in a uh, in Adam and Chava, you know, feel bad for them. Okay, I tell you. Do you believe? No, I already talked about uh, Jesus, the idol. No. Are we at the end of times? Yes. Do I know Rabbi Cartman? No. Uh, uh, why have you got a picture of Khomeini on the wall? I don't have a picture of Khomeini on the wall. I have pictures of holy rabbis on the walls. Khomeini is a wicked disgrace of a human being. Uh, Jewish people are waiting for something that has already come. Okay. Uh, I've seen your Rabbi Palachi Shul. Yeah, a few years ago I was there. No, is there any other reasonable questions here? I'll stop with the free Palestine. Uh, it's not a war if the other side is not fighting. Um, well, okay. Anybody? Okay. All right, let's see. We're going to go to back to Facebook. Oh, we're already two and a half hours in. So, uh, let's see if we have any more questions. Okay, there's more. What are the best Torah names to name children? Uh, names from the Torah of righteous people. Righteous people, yeah, there's plenty of righteous people uh, in the Torah. Uh, names of the prophets, names of the forefathers, names of the tribes. Uh, there's plenty of righteous people. Always name a kid after a righteous person. Uh, and um, there's plenty of them in the Torah. Uh, like you thought, we should never get angry because everything that happens to us is from Hashem. Nevertheless, if someone did something against us, they chose to do so. So why can't we be upset with them? 
to be upset with somebody is a natural thing to do. So it's not a matter of why you can't be upset with them. It's why you shouldn't be upset with them for a couple of reasons. If somebody took something from you, stole from you, okay? We're going to try to keep it simple. The more Torah you know, the more you feel bad for that person. The Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Israel Meir Akohen, one time somebody came into his house that was looking to rob the house. Immediately, and the Chafetz Chaim was home. Immediately, Chafetz Chaim said, Everything is Efkel. You can take whatever you want. You're not stealing. And I'm telling you it so you don't think that you're stealing even. You can take whatever you want. Why would one of the greatest Torah sages of the last century say such a thing to someone that just broke into his house and it wants to rob the house? While we, someone even thinks about stealing our stuff, we get angry. What's the difference between us? The difference between us is knowledge. How is it? A person that steals from you, let's see what they have to deal with. First, if they're stealing from you, that means that they are already at a desperate situation. They're in a desperate situation. They either don't have a job or they don't have enough money that they're making from a job to bring them to this position where they have to steal and, sec- and, and, and jeopardize their freedom and even their life as a result of stealing. Number two, they stole from you, which means that God is going to punish them. If they're still alive, that means that someone would steal from them. If they die that way, that means that they can never go to heaven until they get reincarnated, come back to this life, and return what they stole. Which means that even if they keep everything else in the Torah perfect, but they still have not returned what they stole, they cannot go to heaven. Ever. Until they come back and return it. In addition to the fact that in Genom, there's a special section for thieves where they're fed sand and glass and screamed at when you were taking stuff that was not yours you aren't crying why are you crying that we're feeding you this so now there's more but up to now are you still mad at this person now that you know that everything's going to happen to them and what they're going through and they stole from you or are you more in line with understanding why the Chafetz Chaim says you're not stealing everything is yours why because he doesn't want this person to go to Gehenom he doesn't want this person to be reincarnated and the most important of all to know that if this person not only chose to steal but chose to steal from this person that means that Hashem allowed them to steal from that person that means that if it wasn't him stealing from him somebody else will be stealing from him there was a decree for money to be stolen or something to be stolen from this person Hence, there's no reason for you to be upset at the person, but rather, as the Chinuch says about 700 years ago, in the mitzvah, I believe it's mitzvah 251, that talks about don't have uh, uh, hatred in your heart for another Jew. Uh, I may be wrong about the number, but I think it's around that, that uh, mitzvah. He, saw, he talks about how you're not supposed to be mad at another Jew for doing something wrong with you, uh, to you, rather you should be mad at yourself. Why? Because you brought this on to yourself. If someone was permitted to steal from you, 
that means you did something wrong in order for them to be permitted to do something wrong for you so instead of being mad at them be mad at yourself what did i do to deserve this and what do i need to change in order for it not to happen so that is the logic of a righteous jew now to get there takes a little bit of effort don't get me wrong it's not just because you heard this automatically you're going to turn into the chafetz chaim but we at the very least need to know what correct looks like what right looks like in order to have a chance to get there in order to at least shoot for that direction even if we're not there yet at least we can aim towards that direction rather than just say what we're doing is right when we know it's wrong so that's the point somebody hurts you that means they were decreed in heaven to hurt you and they're permitted to do it because you did something they're going to be punished for doing it because they did something but the point being is is that rather than being mad at the person try to figure out what you have to do in order for it not to happen will there be a bh siuma sechet this year if you're talking about pesach yes yeah uh in uh, rashi's commentary it says moshe gave a specific time he was returning but they miscalculated the time due to the satan putting the clouds covering the sun why did hashem allow that to happen knowing that the people are going to sin with the golden calf as hashem says multiple times that he tests us in order to see if we love him and if we believe in him or if our belief is going to be shaken uh in fact when uh, we received the ten commandments it talks about in parashat vayit hanan also in parashat uh, itro Moshe Rabbeinu tells us that hashem tests us in order to see whether we love him whether we believe in him so if everything worked out perfect uh then they, they you know there wouldn't be a test then uh you know they wouldn't we wouldn't deserve the reward they were getting but if we're tested and let's say somebody comes a dreamer of dreams and a uh, someone that says that has a new prophecy and we are told in the Torah even if somebody makes magic tricks and flies in the air and makes the bucket uh, turn into a bunch of fish still we don't change the Torah because of this person but if people follow him they're going against the Torah now if they say yeah but he made miracles what the Torah said don't follow people because they make miracles follow people because they're following the Torah now why did you send me this person uh, that can make miracles to test you to test you to see if you follow the Torah or you follow the uh, what looks good if you follow the uh, the uh, the awesome looking stuff so the same concept here Hashem allowed the Satan to test Am Yisrael to see are they going to follow me or are they going to follow their hearts and unfortunately they miscalculated by six hours that's why it says Boshesh Boshesh is spelled Beshesh the same way as uh, in six they miscalculated by six hours and uh, this led them to uh, follow the uh, Erev Rav that uh, had the golden calf uh, but point is is that had they followed the uh, the leadership of Aaron and Hu, which were the leaders that were left behind after uh, Moshe Rabbein went up to Mount Sinai they wouldn't have uh, done it but they didn't want to follow the leadership they wanted to follow their hearts and that's what led them to the golden calf okay let's see if TikTok has some more question I thought no dawah in Judaism uh no dawah is a uh is a Muslim thing Judaism we call it kiruv rechokim and it's around for a lot longer than even Islam is
I am a Jew from an anti-Semitic sect. Okay, so maybe time to do tshuva and leave that sect. It's not one, you understand? Okay, again with the same thing. Uh, a lot of you just repeat the same thing over and over again. Not, I don't get it. Do you not have like better thing to do with your life? Does my gayness have to be kosher? Uh, no, you're just going to uh, suffer uh, in Genom for a very long time after they finish your sentence in Kafakela and they operate on your uh, sexual organs by, you know, without anesthesia or any type of uh, equipment that would numb the pain. And it will remind you that you were uh, not supposed to be homosexual. And you'll get even additional punishment for making fun of the fact that the Torah says that you're not allowed to be homosexual. And you'll get a much, much bigger punishment for the fact that uh, you mocked the Torah and uh, did it publicly. So, uh, yeah. And that'll be very kosher once, uh, once you see that. Very kosher. They'll have a kosher stamp on it and everything. Okay. Uh, this one person keeps saying, what is this one God for wives? I have no idea what you're talking about. Our God doesn't have wives. Our God doesn't have wives. What's the process to convert to Judaism? I fall in love with the religion. Uh, the process is uh, not easy, but not impossible either. You have to move to a Jewish community uh, and then find a rabbi that could be uh, willing to sponsor you, to guide you. Uh, then after you learn the basics of the uh, Jewish life, Torah, that's necessary, abandon any type of false beliefs, uh, adapt the uh, Jewish lifestyle, if you will, you know, do the things that are necessary to live a Jewish life, pray every single day at the synagogue, eat kosher food, you know, be modest, and so on. Uh, you'll go to the uh, Jewish court called the Bet Din. Uh, this usually uh, takes some time before they, you know, from the time you start following all this to the time you actually officially convert. If you were not circumcised, then you'll have to be circumcised. Uh, if you're a male, if you're not, a, if you're a female, then you don't have to. You dip into a mikveh, uh, which is like a pool of water, uh, as the last formal step, in, uh, uh, you know, of the conversion. On my um, website under uh, uh, I think it's uh, free information or something like that there's or, or ebooks there's a document called uh, conversion syllabus uh, or if you want you could just send me a message on whatsapp or email and I will uh, email you this uh, conversion syllabus in there it has different recommendations of books things you need to study and also a hyperlink to a uh, lectures that I've done about conversion they'll give you the uh, uh, basic guide of what's necessary in order for you to convert, uh, including everything I just said and obviously much, much more. Okay. All right, we'll take one or two more questions, then we're done. Is a radio speech 
In a radio speech, Hitler said he saw himself as Haman. Could this be true? I never heard it. I don't know. Uh, I'm sober now. What do the Rabbanim have to say about the vis-a-vis -vis Purim? If you are a former alcoholic, don't drink at all. Can someone fulfill the mitzvah of listening to the Megillah over Zoom if it's difficult to go to shul? No, Megillah has to be heard from an actual person live or read, uh, you know, yourself from a uh, Torah scroll, from a uh, Megillah scroll. Okay, I think we only have one question left. Should we force ourselves to speak Hebrew like Syrians and Temanim or like Rav Mazuz? They say it's the best version of Hebrew. You shouldn't force yourself to speak Hebrew like anything. Just uh, try your best to speak Hebrew and understand it. But it, uh, adapting an accent of the uh, of Syrians and, and, and Temanim or even as Rav Mazuz, uh, from my perspective, it's a little silly uh, because these none of them are your traditions. None of them are your traditions, and I don't think that you'll be able to really adapt them anyway. Um, these are unique to them. These are three unique uh, traditions. Uh, so I, I think that if somebody saw you, I don't know what you look like, whether you're white, black, or uh, Asian, or whatever you are, if somebody saw you and they clearly saw that you're not Syrian, you're not Yemenite, and you're not uh, from Tripoli, uh, and you're speaking with the same accent as Rav Mazuz or the, the, the Yemenites or Syrians, they would just find you silly, uh, find you ridiculous. So uh, it's uh, just just imagine uh, just imagine this. You know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, in a uh, um, you know a different I guess a different era. I grew up in you know. So when I came when I went to high school, you know, um, the high school I went to was uh, I would say I don't know probably it was you know in a really really bad neighborhood. At the time, I don't know what it is today. It's probably not necessarily that much better today. It wasn't exactly the good place, and there was, you know, was a uh, fair fair amount of crime in the area. And um, one of the uh, one of the things that I decided to do with with my life at the time when I was a kid, I decided to play football. Now, most of the team, the you know that uh, you know that it's I was friends with were not. You know, they're not Jewish guys. There's black guys, there's Italian guys, a couple of Irish guys. That's it. That's, that's what the team was. Now, I became friends with a couple of the black guys. I became friends with a couple of the Italian guys. Irish guys, I don't think I got friends with anybody over there. I don't remember anybody. But if I came to you and I told you, listen, because I have a few friends that are black, I'm going to start talking to you like, uh, like I'm from the hood. So instead of saying, uh, you know, uh, ask, I'm going to say axe. And I'm going to start saying word and all types of lingo that black people used at my time. I don't know what they use today, but, you know, you say to everybody, what's up, son? And what's going on? If I started talking like that, you'd say, I'm sorry, Rabbi, but you should probably institute yourself because you sound stupid and uh, you look stupid. And what you're doing is stupid. Why? Because that's not your culture. And even though you were friends with a couple of black guys, and you're still friends with a lot of black people, and you have students that are black, you're still not black. Don't talk like them. Simple. Okay. If I said, ah, you know what? Fine. 
black guys, fine. Okay, but I got friends that are Italian. And you know, the Italian guys say, hey, oh, what's going on? Hey, you know, if I start doing like that, and you're going to say to me, uh, Rabbi, unless you're going to start eating pasta on the next uh, lecture and, and, and pretty much uh, disown your Judaism, you got to stop doing that. Why? You're not Italian. Even though you were friends with a few Italian people, you're not an Italian person. So stop it. Yes, your grandparents spoke Italian in Italy and, 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 and uh, Tripoli are close. Still, you're not Italian. Stop it. Cut it out. You look stupid. Stop talking like you're Italian. And even the Italians don't talk like that. Just the guys from Brooklyn talk like that because they pretend to be Italian, even though they don't speak Italian. But anyway, stop it. You're not Italian. Cut it out. Okay. So each person would quickly recognize that I look like a moron acting like someone that I'm not. Same concept here. One of the most, I think, ridiculous things that I see at times is specifically in the conversion world is when converts adopt the behavior of the extreme opposite of them. Like the most extreme thing in the world. Like you see a guy, you know, just like joined Judaism yesterday and he decides that he wants to be like a Hasid of Satmer. Like, do you know, or, or Bobov, or I don't know, some Hasidut that's like, like whiter than like a piece of bread. You're more European than, than, than the, uh, the king of England. And he's like this African-American guy that wants to be that. Like, it's just, to me, it's ludicrous. It's, why? You have no connection whatsoever to their culture. You may like their clothes because it's cool to have that cool hat and all, but it's not you. It's never going to be you. Even if you wear that hat for the next 30 years, it's still not going to be you. Why not just simply be a regular Jew? Why do you need all that other stuff? Why not just speak Hebrew to the best of your abilities with the traditional accent that you have? Why not just do the things that you can do and not try to emulate someone else? And that's in essence what I'm trying to say here. Don't try to be somebody else. Be you. Be you. And be something that you can take home and you can be proud of it. And not something that you have to constantly live up to some type of standard that is really unknown to you. Uh, quite frankly, I would have a hard time believing that any of the guys that have adopted their, you know, a, uh, some of these extremes really know the traditions and everything behind them to the extent that they should. And quite frankly, really are doing it for the right reasons. Like I see some guys, for whatever reason or another, they want to convert, but they want to be Yemenite. Now, I got a few people that I'm connected to that, I'm, that are Yemenite. Real Tamidei Chachamim, serious people. And sometimes, you know, you ask questions. And they laugh at this. Like, what do you mean, Yemen? You're going to be a Yemenite? Yemenites are so unique. They're so un they're such a unique part of, of Judaism that it's just silly to just say, wait, you just converted six months ago and you want to be a Yemenite? Like, do you even understand what kind of life the Yemenites have lived in order to be where they are today? Like, can you even relate to any of their traditions? And the truth is, only people think, the only thing that people can relate to is the exterior. They see how they put their tefillin a little differently. They see how their peyote are a little bit different. They see how their clothing are a little bit different. They see how their language is a little bit different. But the truth is, the real culture, the real 
meat part of it. They have no concept of what it is. They have no concept. One of the main things with Yemenites, they're completely removed from materialism. And many, the, the real serious, completely removed from materialism. You're an American, you're coming to the Yemenites with your materialistic lifestyle. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Now again, I'm sure people are going to disagree with me and say, nah, you don't know. And you're fine, fine. You can, this, is, this is my opinion. This is my opinion. This is not Torah. This is, this is the one part that's at the end of the lecture. This is purely my opinion. But I personally think that a person should be who they are, not who they're trying to be. Who they are. You are what you are. You should be proud of what you are. Be the best version of what you are. Do the best of what you are to your abilities. And that's it. If you're a, uh, you know, a Orthodox Jew, that's already an achievement. If you are a Sephardi, fantastic. If you're Ashkenazi, amazing. If you are a, uh, a convert, extraordinary. If you are a uh, whatever you are, just be the best version of what you are and know that the separation is as, is as big as you make it. Meaning that if Torah is your priority in life, the separation between you and any of the other parts of Judaism is almost zero. It's almost zero. If Torah is not the primary part of your life, then the separation between you and everybody else is greater and greater based on how much knowledge you have versus how much knowledge they have. If they have a lot of knowledge, you are a world apart from them. Even if you have the same skin complexion, it doesn't make a difference. But if Torah is the number one thing in your life, the separation between you and any aspect of Judaism is, is virtually none. You're willing to die for any one of them. You're willing to help any one of them. But if Torah is not priority in your life, then you focus more on the exterior, on the thing. This is similar, and I'll finish off with this. This is similar to how it is in the secular world. I remember when I was on Wall Street, 20 years, one of the things that drove me crazy was very similar to this. When I would have employees and other colleagues that uh, would harp on business titles. What they would have on their business card as the title. He's a representative. He's a uh, vice president. He's a, uh, I don't know, uh, senior vice president. He's a director. He's a this. Me, what I said, you're all losers. That's what you are, for sure. If you're spending that much time uh, determining what your title is on your business card, that means you're a loser and, and not a businessman. Why? Businessmen focus on business, not on job titles. And they'll say to me, yeah, that's easy for you to say because your business card says CEO. I said, yeah, but before it, I didn't care what it say. And that's why I had enough success to make money to become CEO. When you care about being CEO, you never become CEO. You become what you guys are, which is the you know representative and director and VP and this, but so much thought about the title, very little time to actually make any money. Now, again, my business attitude, it hasn't changed much. In the religious world, I want to make sure that people understand you're in it to go to heaven. You're in it to serve God. You're in it to literally live inside the Torah. There's nothing greater than learning Torah. There's nothing greater than doing what God says. You're already a winner. You're already a winner by following the Torah. 
Who cares what title you have? It doesn't matter. Just do the best you can to serve God the best you can, to follow the law the best you can. Forget about the accent and all that other stuff. Just do everything for the real reason, and I promise you, you'll have a whole lot to write home about. Thank you very much for learning with me. Wonderful questions, even for the people that are attacking. Hopefully next time you've learned well enough not to attack without a little bit of knowledge first. Enjoy your Purim fast tomorrow, Megillah at night, Megillah against the following morning. Enjoy the Mishloch Manot. And again, anyone that wants to fulfill the mitzvah of helping the poor people in Israel can go to the website bhpurim.org. Over there, you donate. We can, we take the money. We give it to poor people in Israel. We already have more than three times, I believe, what we've actually raised that we've already distributed. So, Baruch Hashem, we're helping as many people as we can. And hopefully you guys will be partners. Whether you are or you aren't, we'll try to do our best to help as many people as we can. Thank you very much for learning with me. And Bezat Hashem, we'll see each other uh, later this week. Kol Tuf. עופות, שימורים, ושמן, ומיץ ענבים, וכל הטוב הזה הולך להגיע למשפחות. בעזרת השם בשעות הקרובות יחולק אליהם עד הבית, בזכות הארגון, בעזרת השם. אני מברך את, את העוזרים בחלוקה. שהקדוש ברוך הוא ירחיב לכם בפרנסה, שפע גדול ועצום בלי גבול, שתמשיכו לעשות כהנה וכהנה בלי גבול, השם יברך אתכם בכל, מכל, כל. וכן ירצון ונאמר, אמן. אמן. שלום, תודה רבה על הארגון, בעזרת השם שנותן לנו מתנות, ונזקקים. תודה רבה על הכל, תזכו למשוות, חג שמח. השם ישמח אתכם, תודה רבה על כל התרומות שלכם. אתם לא יודעים כמה אתם שמחים מיהודים. עם, ה, עם הלב הטוב שלכם, עם הנתינה שלכם, שיהיה לכם רק טוב, השם יתברך ייתן לכם פרנסה בשפע גדול, בריאות איתנה, לכם ולמשפחה, ותהיו תמיד מהמשפיעים. השם יברך אתכם כמו שאתם משמחים אותנו, השם ישמח אתכם פי מיליון. הנה אפשר לראות כבר, והעופות ממתינים בערימה אחת כדי שהם יישארו קפואים. זה מה שמקבל את כל משפחה. אנחנו כאן באמצע, והגיעה עוד סחורה. יש עוד משפחות, עופות, יש פה כבר סלים שהם מוכנים, אפשר לראות, ופה כבר כאילו לשים גם את המיץ ענבים בשביל המשפחות, הצטרפו אליהם גם ביצים וגם עופות. טובים אנחנו כאן בהכנות לקראת החלוקה, חלק מהדברים כבר הגיעו, תכף יגיעו עוד עופות ועוד דברים נוספים, נסדר את הכל בשקיות to share it because other people need to learn too.